Try Cora's cult favorite period products without joining a cult. Cora offers modern period products like whisper-thin pads and liners with a breathable cotton top sheet and tampons made with 100% organic cotton. And with a full range of absorbencies, Cora's got you covered from heavy flow to barely there days. Try Cora today for a more comfortable period, clean and simple. Find Cora nationwide at Target, CVS, and online at cora.life. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome back to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Have a really, really fun show today, doing some history stuff, which means, which means I'm here with my dude, Eris Pina, copy box operator, and also a fellow just history guy, apparently world-renowned history guys, right? Yeah. Everybody knows us. Like, yeah. <laughs> Not really. Apparently now. <laughs> but um, yeah, everything is good, man. This is um going to be a really fun episode that we're going to be uh, talking about because... No, it's just on a fun subject, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, um, this this is the kind of thing that's right up our alley for a handful of reasons. So we're talking about the Duke, Tommy Morrison, um, obviously the history aspect, heavyweights, somebody who was alive and fighting within our lifetime and within our memory, you know. Uh, and so this is the kind of show, and obviously there's going to be a fair bit of true crime element there, which we've also done a, a pretty good amount of. So, like I said, right up our alley and somebody that uh, listeners and viewers have talked about us or asked us to do a couple of times. So we're yeah. talking about Tommy Morrison, man. You know... I've we've talked about this enough, Pat, just in our own personal conversations and like Zooms and whatever it may be. Morrison was one of my favorite fighters when I was a kid. And I'm not going to say that I was even a fan when he first came on the scene and when he was knocking dudes left and right. I missed I became a fan in like, you know, 95. So I had already missed his moments against, um, you know, knocking out the Dave Jacobs and the Harry Terrells or um getting the hell knocked out of him by Ray Mercer, outboxing George Foreman, yada, yada, yada. But, like, I was well aware of Morrison by that point. You know what I mean? Um, for instance, he was heavily featured on 30 Great One Punch Knockout videos, the VHS tapes. He was. He, he was one of the few current guys. Him and Edward. Was that the Harry? Uh... Yeah. Harry Terrell and Dave yeah, Jacobs, yeah. guys that, you know, featured. Maybe another one, too. But every time you'd see the Joe Lewis or this guy or, the, like, an old black and white clip, um, black and white clip, You'd see right afterwards a colorized clip of whether it be um, Tommy Morrison or sometimes Edwin Rosario. I think those videos were produced by Bill Kane, so it makes sense. But anyways, um, so that was one aspect. Two, Tommy Morrison was a Rocky Five. Say what you will about that movie being an abomination, because it basically was, but that was still huge, you know. And he was he, he played a good part in that movie too. So there was that aspect of it, and he was just cool-looking guy. Like he seemed personable. You know, um, he was different, and he just knocked the shit out of you. You know what I mean? Us as boxing fans, as much as I can appreciate watching Pernell Whitaker or another guy from that era put on an absolute masterclass for 12 rounds and the beauty in that aspect of the art of boxing, us as fans, we are attracted to knockout artists. We're attracted to someone just being able to take one punch and taking you and knocking you out the consciousness of this earth. And Tommy Morrison had that gift of being able to do that. You know what I mean? 
Um, his competition could be a little shoddy, so that might have added to the more spectacular aspects of it. But watching him back in the day and watching those highlight videos of him just obliterating dudes left and right, and then, you know, the whole Golden Wall smile and everything, everybody surrounding him, that he had an aura to him, you know, and it was cool. And you just got really excited to see him. So, you know, the first time I got to see him live, actually, you know, on pay-per-view watching was against uh, Razor Ruddick. And the way, you know, in that spectacular war back and forth, we'll get more into it later. But, like, that's how I became a big fan. I'm like, yeah, Morrison's my guy. He's one of my guys now. You know what I mean? I was already – had my heavyweight division was my favorite as a kid. And he just became one of those key dudes. for me. Even though his career was a little ended by that, I was just fascinated by him. So, yeah, he had a very, very crazy life. But we'll just talk about everything like that. But, I mean, it's going to make for a very complex and very interesting and awesome episode for us. It's it's funny, dude, because all, a lot of the time when we talk about history stuff and we talk about history stuff that like we have mm-hmm. that happened within our lifetime or whatever, um, like my family was more just kind of a general sports family. There were a couple of focuses, but boxing was not really like a focus. So I remember a lot of sports shit. <clears throat> I remember some general boxing stuff happening, but like I, I wasn't into it until like my teen years, except I actually do remember, so back in the day, obviously, I would say this was probably, I would guess, 91. Um, My grandparents lived in Erie, Pennsylvania. And Mm. so me coming from San Diego, like, that's two not starkly different places, but different places for sure. Vastly different, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like, it it was still a city, so it wasn't like we were living, they were living in the fucking total backwoods or something. Yeah, well, it's much more condensed, a little bit of a culture shock for you, I get it. There was shit about it, yeah, that was different. Like, for instance, I remember at my grandparents' house, they had a basement, and in San Diego, you don't, like, there's Southern California, you don't, like, really see basements almost at all. What's that? I don't, I've never, I've never lived in Southern Cali, but there's also things basements in Southern Cali. Nah, because, because of the potential for earthquakes and on oh, top of that. Yeah. Yeah. That would suck. Oh my God. And on top of that, the way that like, you know, I guess the way that a lot of like the, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but like topographically or whatever, and geologically the land that South, Southern California is on is a lot of like sand and shit. And so that's not good for like building into the ground, I guess. Okay. Anyway, uh, but you don't see basements. And so when I went to my grandparents' house, they had a fucking basement. Not only that, that they have a basement, they had like a fucking pool table and like multiple rooms in there and shit. And then my grandpa, who was like really not doing well health wise at this time, nonetheless, had like a full like actual bar like this shit looked like cheers in his fucking basement. And so he had a TV and the coolest shit was I would just go down into the basement like nobody else was really there and I would just chill in the basement and I was like fucking nine or something. So I was not drinking, but I would just chill at the bar, sitting at the bar, watching the TV, which I thought was the coolest shit. And on top of that, they had HBO. So of course I was like, fuck yeah. And I remember watching Rocky five, like, cause they had that shit, you know, when new movies come out on, they'd have it like several times a day and shit like that. So I saw Rocky five sitting there in their little fucking bar basement or whatever, like, a, a few different times i remember that shit and watching that was the extent of my experience or exposure to tommy morrison at the time i wasn't a boxing fan i didn't really know too much about him and then later on when it started kind of like you know getting more into it or it started coming more uh you know me becoming more aware of boxing was right around that time 
probably right before it was announced that he was diagnosed with HIV right around that time, really. I'm not going to lie because I don't really remember too many of the fights before that. But at that time, I was like, oh, shit, that guy. And it was almost kind of like a shock because I was like, oh, he's a real fighter. Yeah, yeah. I thought he was just a fucking Rocky guy, you know. (laughs) But nonetheless, that's how famous Sylvester Stallone was. That's how famous the Rocky franchise was. And still is fucking Creed one, two, three, brother going to start doing like Drago. Like they're doing all sorts of shit. So, I mean, obviously the Rocky franchise still carries the name. Even now back in 1990, that shit was like, you know, so Tommy Morrison was a household name, even not even as a fighter, but like, you know, as a movie fighter. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, uh, it still kind of sticks in my memory from that time, which is that just speaks to how, wide you know that cultural knowledge kind of spread for sure for sure he just you know he had a certain aura about him a certain capture with the media and it goes all the way back to you can go back to the beginning you know to his grassroots right which started in um i believe it was jay oklahoma i he was born in like arkansas i want to say no no but i mean like oklahoma was one of his but yeah well okay yeah we don't have to go back to so he was born at 4 31 a.m no (laughs) we don't have to go back that far we could but we're not gonna but yeah that's in uh jay oklahoma which is prime territory for what we've talked about a handful of times both on the show and off tough Mm -hmm. man contests and also just that kind of southern and midwest circuit that's just and the so, Morrison so carnival notorious for that. That was what they were known for is fighting. You know what I mean? The whole family <laughs> and they're all fighters. That was the family tradition. The dad was a fighter and Morrison fell right along in that. I mean, he was an all-star athlete as a lot of guys were, you know, that young and athletic like that. Like he played football and he played others and he was very successful in those, but fighting was something he was doing very young. And we're talking to the young point where he was, 13, 14 years old, fighting in tough man competitions. <laughs> Very unsanctioned, back alley brawl, crazy, wild shit. Um, you know, when he was like 14 years old, fighting grown men, which is insane to think about. But you know what? There's actually YouTube footage of that. If you look it up, you type in young Tommy Morrison, tough man, you'll see him. And it's interesting because we've heard story. you know, you hear all the stories of Mike Tyson, 12, 13 years old, being 200 pounds and just looking like an yeah, um, looking grown, basically. Morrison was basically the same thing. He was an absolute unit as a kid, right? That just back all filled out, everything. He didn't look like a kid. All right. And the normal Palooka who, you know, was training on beef rice sandwiches or whatever and marbles and um I don't know, boiler makers or some shit at the bar. <laughs> that's probably extremely accurate even though you're joking you know i mean like seriously like you know going in there fighting a kid who morrison i'm assuming was still relatively unscathed in terms of like vices at that point so even at that size even working these guys over you know what i mean and kind of beating the shit out of most of them (laughs) and yeah that's that was his profession he goes to school during the day at night he goes to a tough man competition and beats up on a local drunk there's a lot more detail we should mention just because, you know, I I don't want to basically take a bunch of information from either of these places and not say, um, Carlos Acevedo wrote a good book about, uh, Tommy Morrison. And, uh, obviously if you would, you were to ask certain people, they would say it's very mean and not truthful. 
believe what you want. I think it's pretty well written and fairly accurate. I don't want to say fairly accurate. It's accurate. Um, And it goes into a lot more detail about Tommy Morrison's childhood and the kind of, yeah, the Duke. Uh, It it goes into a lot of detail about his childhood and the kind of tragic upbringing and whatnot. Um, I think a lot of these books, mine included, that we wrote for Hamilcar had a similar sort of trajectory for a lot of these fighters where they just kind of seem destined to fuck up destined for a bad ending and that's kind of what wound up happening and long story short there's a lot more detail about his childhood and background in that book and then also the espn 30 for 30 feature um i mean there's not a ton on there that carlos doesn't go into and he, he talks about that a little bit in the book too but it's good and it's well done and it does uh have some direct looks at the characters involved in this saga uh, for better and worse. So anyway, um, yeah, young Tommy Morrison, definitely even just at 12, 13, 14 years old, a scary looking, you know, for that age, especially, you know, I'm thinking of myself at 12, 13, 14 years old, I was still like growing, you know, I was still not, I could not have been in the ring with grown men. They would have been beating the absolute shit out of me and I would have been crying about it later on. So I mean, you know, Tommy Morrison, on the other hand, at like, I think his mom said he was 10 or 11. She tattooed boxing gloves on his arm. So I mean, like, I'm trying to imagine, bro, I'm trying to say like, when I was like 10 or 11 or some shit, you go like to school and like your friend has their ear pierced and you're like, oh my God, that's so fucking rebellion. Oh my God. You know, or maybe they like dyed their hair and you're just like, their parents are so, that's crazy. And then you tell your parents and you're like, I want to pierce my ear. And they're like, oh, my God, that's crazy. You can't do that. Can't believe their parents let them do that. And this fool's like 11 walking around with a fucking tattoo on his arm that his mom gave him with fucking needle. He wrapped a little bit of thread around the fucking end of the action. Just a needle, like a sewing needle. Wrap the thread around there and dip in India ink and you can fucking tattoo shit. It'll look backwards as fuck, which is kind of like the old school style of what they, you know, when they take the the, the hammer and kind of do it like that, except even more ragtag and just. Well, yeah, except those people know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah, exactly what I'm saying. Even when just (laughs) ragtag crazy out the wind, you know, for instance, I know my, my, my older nephew, he told me one day when we were kids, he got this done in junior high, bro. I think the same thing. Someone just took a needle and an ink or whatever. And he got his initials put right there in his hand. <laughs> and um, he said he got it done during math class or some shit by some kid that he was sitting next to. So, oh, yeah. must... And I knew kids who had like brands and shit yeah, like that. You yeah, know. yeah, but it's like, I mean, I got tattoos all over. So it's kind of like funny to think about. But yeah, Morrison just going in there when he's 12 years old. Yeah, exactly. It was a big thing for me to get my ears pierced when I was 10. And this dude's all going over there getting a tattoo from his mom. And then to show you what was going on. And then with Morrison's dad also too. It was like an amateur team that he had around that he would take kind of in um of him and his brothers his siblings that you know take the amateur show to amateur show that they were going to fight all over the place kind of in a similar mode to um i would say the o'grady's you know both being from the midwest too so it you know it kind of makes sense right pat o'grady would take sean and well i mean he turned a much pro uh, turned him pro much younger than morrison was but like in, in a similar similarly abusive parenting style Mm-hmm. exactly so yeah uh, so i mean like basically not only is is somebody you know destined for ruin here but more kind of like drawing in closer tommy morrison's life is boxing or at least that's what he you know tries to make it for a time but 
like you said, he got into high school sports and kind of steered away from boxing for a while. Um, and it, and it sounded like he said it was a few years, like he hadn't fought for a few years or hadn't competed for a few years. And then his mom had said, look, you need to try out the Kansas city golden gloves because this was a tradition in their family. Yes, and exactly. Kansas and a lot of people don't know. A lot of people might laugh that shit off now, but Kansas city golden gloves used to be among the bigger golden gloves. Now people say golden gloves and you think New York golden gloves because that's oh, it. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, a lot of the, a lot of the other programs have been either just shut down or they've petered out, died out. They're not as big, whatever, not very well funded. You know, the the amateur boxing in the U S is in a bad, bad way. Um, And in any case, it used to be like Detroit had a golden, had a very good and golden gloves. Chicago had a massive golden gloves, Kansas city, San Francisco, LA, et cetera. There used to be a number of cities that had substantial golden gloves, St. Louis, and mm-hmm. in any case, uh, Kansas City was probably the closest one to where they were in Oklahoma. And it was a family tradition that, they you know, uh, his family, so the Morrisons, had competed in the Kansas City Golden Gloves. And his mom, cons- you know, kind of encouraged him to do it. And I think that that sort of sparked something inside of him, whether it was, you know, fulfilling a need, uh, getting him out of trouble. I don't know, whatever it was, he kind of went full force into that. Um, but when he did, he actually ran into a future opponent and I was, I wound up pulling up the, the news article about it and it was kind of, uh, faded, you know? Mm -hmm. So on the way to potentially the, uh, Olympic trials, he ran into Ray Mercer. Ray Mercer was at the time, uh, he was the armed forces champion, armed forces, heavyweight champion. And so he, you know, also, I think I want to say he was like 26 or something at this time. He was not young. So Ray Mercer turned pro a little bit later, and he was considered definitely the like a veteran amateur as, you know, as fucking oxymoronic as that sounds. Um, nonetheless, he was then already a pretty good fighter, and he fought Tommy Morrison and wiped him out. Didn't knock him out, but hurt him in the first round pretty good. And then later on after the fight, he was praising him nonetheless and was saying, you know, I think he's got a future. He's he's uh, really strong for his age. He's a good fighter. It's just that, you know, now is not his time. And Tommy Morrison was basically saying, you know, similarly praising Ray Mercer and saying, yeah, you know, he, he rung my bell and he's a really strong puncher. Um, and Ray Mercer would also later say that Tommy Morrison hit him harder than he'd ever been hit before, pro or amateur. And so... I mean, I mean it, it go was, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I talked forever. <laughs> it was um, <laughs> it was pretty remarkable to think, though, like for Morrison to first off to win the Kansas City Golden Gloves. Um, I mean, because he wasn't really training at that point, like you kind of alluded to, he was out of the ring for a while. He had given up on boxing. Yeah, he was doing it as a childhood, and he I think was, he said he had been training for like six months or something. You know, like training again for six I months think, or something. Yeah, I think like even less than that, because. You know, by that point, he was concentrating on football and other endeavors. Like, he was huge in high school and really popular, and everybody kind of loved him over there. And boxing was just something he did as, like, a side thing, more so fighting in the streets than he was actually in the gym. You know what I mean? So when his mother was like, yeah, this is a family tradition, X, Y, and Z, you should do this, blah, blah, blah. He kind of did it on a lark, more or less. Like, yeah, he trained a little bit, but it was, you know, kind of doing it just to appease his mother as so thinking he's going to go in there and do some damage. But then he wins it. And that qualifies him for the nationals. And um, 
from there also too like you know you get he 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 goes over and has success and then he ends up getting a chance to go you know for the olympic trials which in 88 think about this still in the 80s getting a chance for the olympic trials i mean we've talked about this before how deep it is and how deep the competition was to even get to that point and how like the the amount of guys i mean think about the 88 team not even just at heavyweights but just in general you had guys like roy jones jr kevin e. mckinney um sheesh you know riddick bow ray mercer so many you know what i mean that that came from that class and morrison made it all the way to like the finals before mercer was able to was able to take him out you know what i mean that's that's really really impressive in itself considering a guy that had a rather limited amateur career. You know, he had a preferred record of like over 200 something wins and only like like a dozen or so more or so losses. But that's something that could have been easily fabricated too, especially, you know, when Morrison playing in the Midwest and he's probably adding a bunch of smokers and other, you know, things to that record or his little tough man competitions and shit that he was doing. And so that can easily be inflated in that way. But the the show the natural talent that he had for a time period in 1988 when the competition was that deep for him to get that far to almost be able to represent the u.s team is pretty remarkable himself yeah it, it's it speaks to his natural talent athletic yeah. talent and also clearly his power um and so I, and, I, and i meant to say also too is that at this point they said that he wasn't even really training on anything like he didn't have a diet he wasn't doing any nutrition basically he was just drinking soda and eating twinkies and other junk shit all day like he still looked pudgy. He still kind of, you know, didn't really have a body or whatever. He was just doing his thing. Yeah. And he, he also said that there was no real training facility. There was no real boxing gym. It was just that they, what they had set up and that he said, I can't remember where he said nearby that there was something nearby, like a track or something like that, that he would go to, to run. And that was pretty much it. Like there was no uh, legitimate or professional, whatever, a high class boxing facility or, training equipment that he had and that he had just learned, you know, what he had learned. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and also fighting with his brothers and training with his brothers and whatnot. So it wasn't like there was nobody, but that's not ideal. You know, <laughs> that's obviously uh, different from a lot like Roy Jones, even, even though Roy Jones is kind of a country bumpkin <laughs> dude, you know, more than a lot of people know, nonetheless, Roy senior made sure that he had access to training facilities that other people didn't have. You know, yeah. that he was uh, brought up from a very young, a very, very young age to be a champion, not kind of like caught up in it accidentally like Tommy Morrison seemed to be. But like I said, you know, that speaks to his natural talent and ability and athleticism, et cetera. Um, but yeah, <clears throat> to get that far is pretty, pretty friggin' amazing. It really is. So, I mean, for a guy like that, and you have to, you have to say it too him being white and good looking is not going to, and being very personable, that's going to help his chances of him um, making a successful pro, you know, being a success, uh, successful pro. So he turns pro shortly after the trial, um, a little after the trials in November of uh, 88. And even though he's primarily known as a, um, a guy that fought mostly, you know, closer to his hometown and built his fan base in the Midwest, surprisingly he turns pro New York city. The felt forum. Which, you know, a lot of people might go, I don't even know what the hell that is. It's just a basically Madison Square Garden theater, uh, mm -hmm. what the old the old name for it. And it used to yeah, be considered kind of like the proving grounds or whatever for what's that? 
No, I, no, I didn't say anything. I was like, I was just agreeing with you. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Well, I was, I was like, shit, did I? <clears throat> You're the you know better about the New York stuff, but no, nah, they uh, consider it kind of like the proving grounds, almost almost comparable to like back back in the day, St. Nick's Arena. Like where it would be if you weren't quite a main eventer that was making a lot of money, you know, they'd mm -hmm. throw you in at this place. And that was kind of like how the felt forum was. Absolutely. And there's, dude, there's not a bad seat in the house there either. Like that's one of the more intimate venues you can watch a great fight at and guaranteed you're going to see good action and good atmosphere. So, but yeah, and you know, from there, Morrison starts on the scene and like um, from the late 80s, you know, he does go back to um, to the Midwest and, you know, he's feeding on a regular dose of opponents that you would just kind of see blood on most people's records at that point. But then, you know, by the time 1989 into 1990 starts rolling around, that's when it's, he starts um, uh, getting involved with an old manager who um, knows a thing or two about a lot of punchers and guiding guys to world championships, and that would be Bill Kagan. Someone that was kind of on the outs, trying to find his way back into the sport a little bit, had a very bitter breakup with Mike Tyson and um, still felt he had enough juice in the tank to um, you know, got another guy to uh, to great heights. So, I'd, I'd have to check the timeline about when Jim Jacobs got yeah. sick and died. Yeah. Um, oh, I... not Jim Jacobs, excuse me. Bill, did I say Bill Kane? No, no, no. <clears throat> I did say, okay. Yeah. You're, you're correct, but I'm no, saying... No, Jim Jacobs died in 88? I was going to say, I think it was around this time, but they were a team. And yeah. when Jim Jacobs got really sick and died, obviously, but that left Bill Caton. Bill Caton was not just a manager, but like a tape collector, not just a tape collector, too, but he like owned the rights to a lot of these fights. And he had the and biggest collection in the world at that point, correct? I think so, yeah. And on top of that, he was like allowing networks to occasionally use fights or show clips or whatever and it would be and he had shows too it would be like bill caton's something or other uh i can't remember what it was but long story short he was somebody who knew a lot about boxing had a lot of connections and was very persistent is in terms of his business and you know what he uh did business wise and so bringing bill caton on so well I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but the dude who was managing Tommy Morrison at first supposedly split and ran off because according to him, he was like, you know, he's not fighting good fighters at all. We're supposed to be developing him as a fighter, showing him different styles, different fighters, et cetera, different abilities, and nobody's developing him. They're just putting him in with these guys who he can knock out. And so that's not teaching him anything. And so that's the story that this dude gave was that he ran off because it was like, nah. And <clears throat> so they went after Bill Caton. Um, Tony Holden was involved in Tommy Morrison's career from fairly early on. They went and got Bill Caton, hired Bill Caton to look after Tommy's career. And so when you start looking at Tommy Morrison's opponents from that point on, it's pretty funky, dude. Because like you were saying, he was kind of on the outs with Mike Tyson. Yet there was a very bitter split. Mike Tyson had to sue Bill Caton to get him to back off as his manager and basically step away. I think Bill Caton was getting some sort of percentage at some point. Might have gotten bought out at some point. I don't know. But I, I don't remember the whole Mike Tyson saga. It was, but It was basically when Jim once Jim Jacobs died. Um, Don King saw a way to, you know, ease his way in there and get his claws in the mic because Mike was most vulnerable. 
because Mike was closest with Jim Jacobs, even though him and Bill Caton were a team and they co-managed Mike. Um, Jim was the one that was more so of like a father figure to Mike after Custom Auto died, as opposed to Bill Caton. And so once Jim Jacobs passed away, um, Mike, that's when he was at his most tumultuous. You know what I mean? The Robin Givens saga was going on, all of his outside the ring activities and distractions were happening. And he was, you know, he was in a really bad place and thing. It was e easily to be manipulated. And Don King, master manipulator that he is, that dude will sick and see something before anyone can and just, you know, burp, 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 will jump all over it. And I think it was that he went to, not to veer too much off course here, but like, I think he went to someone's funeral. It might have been Jim Jacobs' funeral or somebody's. And he went there and he like hugged Mike and cried with him and did all this stuff and basically just made sure that. He was, you know, I'm going to be there with you before you know what you signed up. So. And, you know, uh, that split <clears throat> between Mike Tyson and uh, Bill Caton was basically, you know, I think that that kind of opened the door for Bill Caton to look elsewhere, to look for another probably heavyweight, you know, because that brings the most money. You know, that's the most prestigious thing is to make a heavyweight champion. And you you start to see <clears throat> excuse me a lot of similar a lot of similarities between the opposition of Mike Tyson early on and Tommy Morrison fairly early on in his career you start to see a lot of familiar names and so well, yeah like Dave Jacob <laughs> well, you know yeah a lot of the a lot of the fools that like they would show on ESPN Classic a lot yeah. of the fools they would show him bowling over on ESPN Classic you know you start to see yeah Tommy Morrison getting in with those guys and it was and it was it was spectacular to watch, you know. What I mean, it really is. Back then, if you were a fan and you saw this guy just, you know, knocking over these guys, you you couldn't help but at least get excited, if not curious, you know. Besides, if uh, curious, because there was you know wild the way he would do it. It wasn't just like mm -hmm. normally goes in there, hits a couple of punches, they fold over a little bit quietly, and he goes into the night. Like Tom Morrison was spectacularly hitting guys and taking them and just flattening them left and right, and they were really really heavy knockouts. Um. Harry Terrell, who had fought on Who's Who from the late 70s up until the 90s and, you know, lost almost every single time he ever fought somebody good, but was a serviceable journeyman. That was um, a spectacular knockout. That was the one I think, you know, Morrison hits him with that overhand right. You see him become like a slinky, fall <laughs> over the ropes, his head snaps back and everything. He just lays this splayed out on the canvas. Um, Dave Jaco, who handed Razor Ruddock his first loss and another guy who fought everybody you can imagine back in his that back in his time and lost almost all of them um when was the first punch he gets hit with a quick morrison left hook hits him boom 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 out right there i Name can't even tell you how many dave jacos i saw at like the soccer field in 1987 wearing <laughs> oh, fucking oh. like knee high motherfucking one striped socks <laughs> And in some shorts, running around with a fucking cop mustache, yeah. just like ready to get into their station wagon and head over for a whopper before they head home to their house in the suburbs, bro. I saw so many Dave Jacobs. Yeah. And these were the guys that Morris was bowling over back then, right? Well, I mean, I mean there's, there's to, other like, go ahead. To be fair, though, I mean, to be fair, you you put those two back-to-back -back stoppages or knockouts, David Jaco and Harry Terrell. Mm -hmm. You slap those two into a quick little knockout clip or you know, highlight clip or whatever, 
And that's precisely what Bill Caton did. Yeah. You know, you start sending those around. And in 1988, 89, dude, you know, right, right around when there's rumors, Mike Tyson's, you know, there's shits going on and he's falling apart. You know, we need a new guy. And Bill, oh, and Bill Caton, who's yeah. Mike Tyson was working with is, you know, sliding these little fucking VHS tapes across the table. And you're like, oh, shit, what's this now? Mm hmm. You can kind of understand it. But Tyson, yeah, back in the day, they made sure that they were always slipping in, uh, that Tyson would fight early enough that they would be able to get his highlights for the nightly news that night. And then they were kind of, you know, using the same formula for Morrison, that they were just keeping him active. And then not only just, you know, having him fight a little locally at home, but having him branch out too. Now he's like taking the show on the road to Atlantic City. Sometimes he's making a pit stop in Vegas. She's here and there. And, you know, the competition is still very, very suspect and still bowling over a lot of guys. So it makes sense why his original management, you know, his original trainer and management was just kind of like, hey, I'm feeling and because he's not he's not learning from this, knocking over guys. Morrison, as we've seen throughout his career, always had a lot of limitations. And we'll talk about that pretty soon when they got exposed. But it's true when you keep on moving on and you're not really learning by bowling over guys at one round, two rounds, three rounds if they're lucky. Um, or unlucky, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, you know, it, it gets to the point where, like, you know, what is he really learning? Is he get his, you know, the deficiencies that are they being fixed in the gym? Because he's not being tested about them in the ring. So he gets finally, we're in 1991 now, right? And Morrison is now graduated from absolute trail horses and just, you know, guys that get flattened one or two rounds to washed former contenders and former champions you know trail horses from the 80s and we've talked about this from other eras there's always guys that like it's kind of sad to see that when that whenever a new decade starts there'll be a bunch of leftovers from the previous decade that still kind of hang on a little too long and then they become the cannon fodder for the young guns of that era you know what i mean and we saw that how jerry cooney ravaged the ones from the 70s ken norton ron lyle um jimmy young uh, we saw how Terry Norris was doing it to his contemporaries, not the, you know, to the stayaways of the 80s with like Sugar Ray Leonard and Donald Curry, John Dobby. And so it started happening to some of the heavyweights from the lost generation who are hanging on to the 90s. Guys like Tony Tubbs, Quick Tillis, Greg Page, you know, um, Michael Dokes, Pinkman Thomas. Tommy Morrison had his pick of the litter too. Starts it off, you know, fighting um, Quick Tillis. Chick Tillis, who is, it seemed like light years away now, unfortunately, from when he extended a young Mike Tyson the distance for the first time, was now getting beat up left and right by any guy who wanted to pad his record. No difference here. He gets knocked out in the first round. Pinkle and Thomas, same thing. You know, at one point possessed one of the best jabs in the division, the guy that looked upon as maybe the successor to Larry Holmes. And he got, you know, drugs and a lot of other things hollowed him out to a shell of absolutely nothing but he got ravaged and cut up and stopped up by Morrison at that point. You know what I mean? So by the time this is going on, Morrison's on his way now to um eventual collision course, uh, his most infamous fight. But the first time his limitations are shown now is his very next fight against um a Russian by the name of Yuri Balin. And if listeners to this show, you guys are all, most of them are hardcore, so they, they kind of remember this. You remember like the... Uh, early early 90s the russian invasion invasion they kind of had with like in boxing right where i think it was volin they had a lightweight i think uh sergey artemov something like that yeah. and a couple of they, they came over and they were you know based in the u.s and they were training and they all had extensive amateur backgrounds and they were supposed to make you know a big splash in the in um in america all of them kind of 
fell apart for whatever reason. I think Artemov suffered a brain injury, actually, in a fight with Carl Griffith or something. Um, don't quote me here. I'm just kind of going off the top. And then Valen, uh, his career didn't petter out either. But when he fought Morrison, he was only 10-1. and 1, And this fight's on YouTube. I've watched it before. He was giving Morrison fits. And this is the first time you could see Morrison just kind of like struggling and looking like really off and the, the limitations that his trainers and, you know, people that were close to him were kind of worried about because he wasn't learning and not really giving a shit because he's bowling over at everybody is starting to be exposed. And that's when questions starting to rise now. Hmm. Okay. How good really is he? Sure. He has a great left hook. Sure. He has power and good hand speed, but all right, now we're starting to see something here. Well, and also this was right around the same time. Remember, this was right in the thickest shit with Rocky Five. Yeah, yeah. Too. So Rocky Five had come out, and I mean that was kind of a double-edged sword, especially with uh, boxing fans, because you know, uh, even though I I don't really like boxing movies, I don't think by and large you generally do. They're usually bad. I mean, I'm not trying to be a dick. They're oh, know, they fucking suck, bro. Yeah, they're they're just usually they're not good, dude. Uh, you know, the heyday for boxing films, good boxing films is fucking long gone, probably like the 60s and 70s or something. But regardless, um, we boxing fans still consume media that has to do with boxing, like movies and TV shows and shit like that, Contender, etc. So in any case, um, you know, right around this time, boxing fans had got into the idea that, oh, there's another Rocky movie. And I mean, even though that shit was panned by critics and I'm not trying to say it was good either, we still saw a lot of it. We were exposed to a lot of it. But when the realization came that this dude in the movie was like, oh, that's a real fighter who's trying to like do some shit now. There's a lot of skepticism. There's a lot of people going like, "Mm, he's got to prove himself, even though that's true. Uh, he had like extra skepticism, you know, levied his fucking way, uh, fair or not, probably unfair to a degree. And then there was also the whole great white hope shit, right? Like, Absolutely. Uh, which Absolutely. that the great white hope shit is not really fair because that's kind of got a whole different connotation to it that it doesn't sound like Tommy Morrison ever had anything, had he had any interest in, but the fact that he was a white heavyweight is that's not unimportant. That's extremely important for marketability and for his ability as, you know, uh, like a fighter to get breaks, you know, as a white heavyweight period, you know, whether anybody wants to, uh, you know, admit that or not. And I think that that was part of the problem was that Tommy Morrison, for whatever reason, had gotten it into his head fairly early on that, you know, he had come from a very tough background, a very difficult and, traumatic background so i don't want to downplay that part but it's almost as if his mind got stuck in that time in his life so everything that he got and everything that he did he was justifying it some way or another and then when he hit stardom with rocky five it was just like he's the man he could do whatever the fuck he wanted to do you you know who was going to stop him and that was that was the problem and that was kind of where it steamrolled fucking downhill uh, even though it didn't, it wasn't really apparent yet, but Yuri Volin was actually a good fighter. And it was like, you know, you're seeing, oh, okay, this, this guy does have limitations, but that just added fuel to the fire within the boxing community, you know, like what, uh, as far as the skepticism and doubt for Tommy Morrison. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't like, it's, you're right. It's not very unfair to give him that whole great white hype, um, hype, hope, whatever. 
thinking of the movie. Yeah, either either um, way, Terry Conklin, motherfucker. Yeah, <laughs> because of uh, because like you said, Morrison never really bought into that or even seemed to care so much. But um, it was yeah. It was, anytime there was like a really popular white heavyweight on the scene that had knockout power, people were just getting really excited about. And so yeah, that that would that would have that name tag on Morrison. But the Rocky Five thing was really a huge boost to his career too. Like I mean, it got him really really popular. As bad as that movie was. And whether he liked it or not, it gave him a ton of notoriety. I don't think his coaches and his inner team liked it so much because Morrison was already a notorious partier, all from like even his teenage years, and definitely um, was hard pressed to say no to anything, whether it was indulging in, in out vices or women for that matter, especially women. <laughs> and, you know, um, so that only kind of added more fuel to the fire of him just kind of being distracted outside the ring because of the newfound fame he got from the film. And I thought he was good in the film, actually, too. You know, as bad as that movie was, Morrison played a good part in it. Right? He, he showed good chops in his acting ability, and he was yeah. playing himself more or less, you know, besides, like, when, you know, getting um, influenced by uh, Duke, who I thought was hilarious. Um Morrison, you know, you could tell he was almost just playing himself as just a guy that just kind of moved from the Midwest and was just trying to make it as a fighter. So it wasn't like too difficult for him to kind of bring out that same type of um, personality, right? And he was pretty young too. He's like 20 or 21. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah. taking that into consideration, dude, like I said, he had a lot of talent overall. Like he was able to, at least for this period of time, channel that talent. Uh, into something that was seemed a little it seemed meaningful and seemed oh yeah you know and, legit and here's something that funny too is that um there's a funny little off story i read about rocky five and during the making of it is that you know during the scenes where you got the highlight scenes of uh tommy gunn knocking the shit out of all yeah. of them <laughs> yeah yeah right <laughs> Just and hit left you and know. right mm -hmm. and so apparently cats were getting actually seriously injured on set Morrison apparently didn't really give a shit about holding back so much about hitting these guys and dudes were getting legit left and right, not senseless, if not getting like really, really injured, maybe suffering a, a bone break or fracture here and there. Um, that being said, it wasn't just all extras that were just stunt doubles willing to take falls. They did bring in some former pro fighters and actual, you know, fighters and stuff to, to try to simulate these things. One of them was a guy by the name of Clay Hodges. Clay Hodges, um, was a heavyweight from most notably as an amateur, more so than a pro, but is probably best known for beating George Foreman twice in the amateurs. And, you know, both of them in like high level competitions, you know what I mean? And being a very good fighter nonetheless. So he wasn't a guy to be trifled with. And he was on set during all these things. He became an actor after, after his fighting career. And so he was on set for this because he was one of the extras to get knocked out. And he's witnessing Morrison knocking these dudes out left and right. And right away, he's just like, oh, you know, I already see what's happening here, right? These guys going to try to take advantage of me. So he kind of gets in there and kind of walks up to Morrison and lets him know right away, buddy. He was like, listen, man, you want to try some shit on me? You're going to fuck around and find out, find out right away. Like, this ain't going to happen. <laughs> and a couple of people, I, got, I guess, you know, whispered to Morrison, he's not the one you want to mess with, and everything went according to plan. <laughs> Sometimes you got a fucking OG on the scene where you're just like... <laughs> Listen, man, anyone that was able to beat George Foreman twice, which I think is Clay Hodge is probably the only person on the plane that was able to do that. Um, yeah, because that didn't happen as a pro, so um, I don't fuck with him. Even 
because what he was probably around 50 when that happened yeah i'm sure he was still in very good shape clearly he was still working and acting and stuff like that so yeah you really want to try him no no don't do that son don't do it son exactly george Foreman would say don't do it son don't do it son ain't worth it yeah sometimes the og just got one more in them that'll just yeah so there was an and part of that story is not total rumor too i mean like i i don't know much about the the details but i do know that tommy morrison they were threatening to sue him uh because he had supposedly injured two of the guys one supposedly he had broken his eye socket so he needed to get a you know, a metal plate or like a mesh, which is fairly normal when you get that type of fracture. And then the other guy supposedly, um, what was it, broke his jaw. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I take from that what you will. I don't know. I guess that I guess that could happen accidentally or if shit gets heated. You know, dude, come on. We know how we know how not just fighters, but guys are. You talk shit. Dude, you put like 10 different guys who don't know each other in a room. Somebody's going to be fighting within like five minutes. You know what I'm saying? Like, guaranteed too that that was like his weekly activities every time on the week you know guaranteed there's gonna be a fight so i can imagine that shit you know probably not accidentally like i said but i can imagine that shit just like coming from shit talk on the shit on the set but it did at least some of it happen for sure and he just kind of put him in his place he was like listen man i'm here to work don't fuck with me and ain't nothing gonna happen (laughs) well so he runs into an old friend in 1991 which is like you know infamous notorious awful terrible (laughs) horrific grotesque (laughs) it's all sorts of fucking adjectives we could use here but you know uh ray mercer so like i said ray mercer former armed forces heavyweight champion uh hard hard man dude just a guy who now that's somebody just in general in in life you probably don't want to fuck with you know (laughs) like taught enough like good ass fighters some lessons and was high level enough that just yeah just in life this is a guy you don't want to fuck with he had a really really good jab at his best a very good right hand uh and also just like an incredible chin dude had a fucking just a chin like nobody and um you know like i said he had praised tommy morrison previously and kind of predicted at the time to a reporter he said you know this guy's going somewhere this guy's a good young fighter it's just you know he wasn't getting me today and so tommy morrison he's guided back to this level you know or guided to this level i should say and back to the lap of ray mercer who was 17 and 0 at the time himself and so this fight is considered uh you know i gotta give props to both of them because they both were putting a significant reputation on the line as unbeaten fighters. This was a fight where both guys hit hard. Neither guy's really coming to fuck around. You know, uh, not that Ray Mercer's a brawler, really, but, you know, he's not going to run from a fight. And so this was a risky fight for both of them at this stage in their respective careers. So you got to hand it to him. Uh, it's not that I'm not going to say, like, oh, you don't see that anymore. You see it, but you don't see it a ton. And so it was a risky fight for both fighters. And it looked like it was going to be, at least early on, risky-esque for Ray Mercer because dude was getting pummeled. Like, he was really taking some shots, bro. Like, you watch that fight back, and it don't look good for Ray early on. Oh, not at all, man. So Mercer was the WBO champion at this point, all right? And that was, we talked about it, very serious. No one really gave a shit about it, cared about it. 
Whatever yeah. Even yeah. even Ray knew. Even at the time, he was like, "I'm not the you know, I'm not the champion." Yeah, yeah. You know that was just you held a belt, but that was almost held in the same regard as being NABF champion back then. You really yeah, they it. were basically fighting to get a shot, even with this yes. belt at at the real champions. Exactly. Yeah. At that point, you know, you were trying to get a shot at Holyfield. That was the main goal. Who was still champ, or or a, or a big fight with like Foreman or whoever it may be. But yeah, for these guys former um, Olympic trials rivals and now both of them undefeated fighting uh, in a big high profile fight. This was huge. And Morrison, man, like you said, started out like a whirlwind and probably looked the best of his career at any, at any point of it for like the first three rounds. I mean, he was letting off combinations, beautiful shit, like really fast hands going over uppercuts, hooks to the body, blah, 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 blah. And, a lot of those shots, nobody was, should have been able to take that. No human would be able to take that. Like, Mercer's head was bouncing left and right. His body was shuddering from these things. And he's holding his hands up. And he's just taking and sucking in. And you're just like, my God. You know, it's very impressive. And then at one point, Morrison, like, uncorks a vicious uppercut and, like, lands a massive left hook. And Mercer's head snaps back. And, like, he barely takes a step back. And at that point, you're just kind of like, you know what? You already see it at... That was Morrison's money punch that almost anybody would get dropped by. Mercer barely flinched from it. And eventually, you know, there's only so much more. And Morrison was exerting a lot of energy. Like, Mercer wasn't throwing a lot, but he was stalking and stalking and stalking. And Morrison is just, you know, trying to hold him off. So he comes over, you know, doing his explosive shit. Jabs back. He's outboxing about moving him, doing everything and looking good. But he's also just exerting a lot of energy. He's really stiff. He's like, you know, even uh, you hear Joe Goosen and um, the commentary team talk about that, how much energy he's using, because you can clearly see he's just like, you know, so wound up and he's not really relaxed. Mercer was super relaxed, even though he's taking the punishment, but he's kind of going with it. And then out of the blue, Morrison just looks like he just ran a 200 mile race. You know, they talked about this um a little bit on that ESPN ESPN documentary. Carlos talks about it a little bit in the book. And I mean, especially now, knowing now what we know and having far more experience, having seen fighters on performance-enhancing drugs, Balco, Victor Conti, Victor Conti, Snack, Victor Conti, and Victor Conti. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Nah, but like, you know, now just having far more experience, knowing more about performance-enhancing drugs in boxing, uh, it seems fairly clear having worked in the, you know, uh, worked in film uh, and going from a slightly pudgy heavyweight to you know, not necessarily pudgy, especially like, you know, compared to the normal human being, he looked very good. But compared to like, you know, a fairly vascular and very good in shape bo boxer and then going from kind of pudgy to all of a sudden fucking jacked. You know what I mean? And he talks about, well, you know, Sylvester Stallone, you know, there's a lot of training routines that I'd never done before. And we started doing, there might be some truth to that, dude. There might honestly be some truth to that for sure. But even his friends were like, bro, he's roiding. <laughs> bro, he's roiding. He was getting packages and he was just shooting shit up all the time. Oh, and yeah. So they, they alluded to that. They talk about it in the book. He was definitely involved in it. Um, his inner circle was trying to avoid him off of that. And Mercer even mentions it on the documentary where they said that um, he was like, you see like the little spots on his back and everything. They were like, oh, those are roids, bro. 
you know, like he's running up there, like five rounds, he's going to be gone. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, like I said, we know a little bit more about that shit. Now, some of those things that they say are telltale aren't necessarily telltale. However, from a scientific point of view, they knew far more about what to do with performance enhancers then than we know now. So now with, with fighters, there's all sorts of shit and there are all sorts of substances that can help with endurance. Back then, a lot of the shit like Winstrol and a lot of fucking, you know, Nandrolone type of shit that fighters could potentially take were the mm -hmm. kinds of things where it would add bulk and water weight and not necessarily help your endurance. So I'm not saying that I know all about what Tommy Morrison was doing. I'm just saying that that's among the possibilities, I think, here. And that being said, going into this, uh, it, you know, few rounds into this Mercer fight, you see Tommy Morrison, who's just, as Joe Frazier would say, he came out smoking. And yeah. he was he was doing well. He was pop, 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 you know, bam, just slamming Mercer. And then just kind of didn't really seem to have a whole lot. And one right hand, that one single right hand that kind of like, almost like deflected off of his shoulder, but just hit him right in the ear temple area was enough. That was, and he didn't have a great chin to begin with, but he was tough enough. Like it wasn't like, you know, a lot of people say, oh, he just, he didn't have a chin at all. He had a glass chin. Like, dude, if that's true, he wouldn't have even have gotten as far as he did, you know, a, a, a undefeated to Mercer, but he had enough of a chin. It was just that as soon as he got tired, as soon as he was cooked, bro, he was real cooked. And that's exactly what happened. And he got well, fucking and himself. And yeah, it was bad. And Tony Perez was the referee, I believe, right? And, and, and it was Tony Perez after having been a referee for a long time, too, to yes. be honest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tony Perez was a little, uh, you know, past the pasture at this point. And he, and like most people, you know, I, I've discussed, I think I was showing this to a coworker who's not a boxing fan, but I like showing him violent shit sometimes. And Oh, he, oh, yeah, yeah, because yeah, the reactions he gets on, he's just like, Whoa, my god, you know, and like, you know, so I showed him this, and I was explaining the referee thing, and he was like, Wait, wait, what? Because Tony Perez, like you just said, instead of him jumping in front of him, and that's what a referee's supposed to do sometimes sacrifice themselves so a fighter doesn't get killed, he just goes over and kind of taps Mercer on the back, like, Hey, hey, stop that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, what's he gonna do, stop you from punching and beating the shit out of a dude, you know, and so. When Morrison gets hit there, he's like lays there and it literally looks like something out of you would see in a Rocky movie. And that's not to be exaggerating. That's literally what happened. He yeah, he's helpless, basically. Yeah. And Mercer's never been a guy that's been known to hold back um when he has his opponent hurt. We actually saw this in subsequent years when, you know, the poor schlebs he was fighting on um Fox Sports, he would just not clean out of the ring when he got them there. So um yeah. That was just his forte. He got you hurt. You were beating his ass a few rounds ago. So he, you know, going to take over and hurt you back now. And Morrison's head just, you know, looked like a pinwheel. Just went boom, 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 boom. You know, looked like he was in a whirly gig or some shit. And poor guy just out, laid there, laid, you know, drooling, half unconscious, whatever. And um, as they said in the show, too, you know, you hear people screaming in the audience, laughing, because Morrison was, like, built up as, like, this hype to some people and this was almost justified for them now and people were screaming ah this ain't rocky five this ain't rocky five or you know saying the hype is this man like you gotta think about it too he was doing really good before then like he put up a great performance he just you know shot him you know like he uh put way too much out there early on that's all it was yeah dude well to be fair 
this is merciless Ray Mercer, not magnanimous Ray Mercer. <laughs> Just saying, yeah. dude. I mean, he's right there in his fucking name, Tony Perez. You got to be ready for anything if this fool gets him hurt. It I was don't even bad, know. Dude. Tony Perez get a bunch of assignments after this. I feel I'm sure he did because referees and especially old ones and and judges and stuff like that keep on getting assignments way after their due date. So it's like expiration date for that matter. You know what I mean? So it's like, come on. Yeah, it's all. I I honestly don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if he did, but I. It was probably at least was toward bad. the toward that the end bad. of his career. I mean, look, dude, we're used to seeing some pretty bad knockouts or whatever. But even among boxing fans, this is the kind of knockout that's like even kind of like, uh, you know, shocking. Well, I mean, they made the cover of Ring Magazine, you know, and it looked like. So I've always seen that photo of Jersey Joe Walcott and his, you know, face being distorted by Rocky Marciano, and. I don't know, especially as a kid, I always thought it was just like a little enhanced to make it look like that. But like Morrison, that you know, the Morrison's face, the, that one punch, you know what I'm talking about with that cover. And you see Mercer with his mouth open, like, you know, almost like exhaling. Ah, he's doing some shit. And you see the face and you see Morrison's face just like turn into like this whole thing of like Play-Doh or Silly Putty or something. You know, it's just a complete. Yeah, it's a rough knockout, dude really really bad and that's the cover of the magazine and that shit's heavy so it's tough to come back from that but to morrison's credit you know a guy uh, the thing about the heavyweight division is that unlike other um, you know unlike other divisions it doesn't take much especially if you're popular and you can still hit hard and you can still you know have a following all it's going to take is a few strings of a wins before you can get another relatively big fight or something's going to you know you get put back on the network again even for Morrison, it didn't take before his very next fight that he was back on a network. He was, you know, even his like fights that were going to be on the comeback, um, uh, the comeback train, where would still be televised, including his next one against this dude named um, uh, Bobby Quarry. You know, member third member of the um, third brother, of the Quarry brothers. Which I believe the youngest, pretty sure the youngest, was, yeah, yeah the youngest, least talented, and another one who suffered damage himself. He actually. You know, to say to his credit, man, he did have one of those knockouts that was very highlight reel. You know that? Remember that one? Yeah, we uh, talked about it on the Corey, like on the Corey Brothers show. Yeah, 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 yeah. But other than that, he was just a trail horse who got really hurt a lot of times, including yeah. this one. And Definitely that was kind of more of a journeyman than anything. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, that, and that was the MO, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's, it's going to fight him. He's going to knock out Camille Odom. And then eventually. Halstead. Jesus, yeah, that that nutcase, Wimpy Halstead. Um, how do you even describe it? Like Wimpy, Wimpy Halstead, besides being one of those crazy circuit Midwestern guys, he had a personality, racist asshole. But that was, was yeah, you pretty much summed it up, right? There. <laughs> I mean, you know, like I, he was uh, not even of the of the O'Grady uh, clan too, wasn't he? Uh, I don't know, to be honest. He was, I, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think Pat O'Grady managed him. I would. That doesn't surprise me. Like now, knowing that, that doesn't surprise me. But because he's from right around that area, and like, yeah, I mean, but well, but in any case, he was obviously food for Tommy Morrison. So that tells you that you know that was if he wasn't even on that level, and then uh, a dude, the dude he fought after that, not uh, Odom, but Art took Art Tucker was a guy who fought in um in prison with James Scott 
he was fought in that same prison program. But when James Scott retired, they ended the program. And so he didn't fight in the program anymore because they yeah, axed yeah. it. But yeah, I mean, like, but point being that these were all guys who within the boxing community were recognizable names, but they were not dangerous fighters. No, no, no. And then finally, when he decides to step up again, uh, it's against Joe Hip, right? And Joe Hip, one of those middling heavyweight, I don't even want to call him like a, a contender because it wasn't really that. You know, sure, he fought for the WBA strap at one point, but like he was clearly a level below of like, even guys like Bart Cooper, who, who stopped him in, you know, nine, uh, in, in some brutal rounds. So it was popular, um, but Native American fighter. So he was a little bit unique as a heavyweight that way, but he did have a following. He had a good punch and, you know, he was, he was a fun fighter to watch. Like he, unfortunately he, his defense consisted of just doing like this. Yeah, bro. And he was thick too, man. He was just like kind of, so there's a lot of target dude. And he would yeah. just get, he just he catch was, a like, whooping. He was a thick dude. And he had the absolute worst. Eye. Like he had that Arturo Gotti type, like, you know, swelling going on where if you breathe on him, his eye socket was going to instantly start like folding up on him badly. Poor guy. Yeah, he needed some head moving and had none. None. But from what I understand, oh. a very nice dude. Absolutely. And he was tough as shit. Like, you got to give him that, man. He came to fight. So, like, I could see why he had a follow-up. Because he was fun to watch. And Morrison, you know, he was hot and cold. Like, one of those guys that, um, I don't we ever really got into it. But, like, as much as, you know, he's become famous now. And he's fought in Vegas. And he's fought in Atlantic City and other hot spots in the country. He still really hasn't left his home place. You know what I mean? He hasn't left the confines of being home in Oklahoma and, like, Midwest of America. Where he's a god. You know, like, if Morrison had relocated somewhere, had a solid, solid team behind him, where he would be, I don't know, some place where they can just, like, put him and keep him in training camp and do things. Sure, I'm sure he would still get, like, you know, wanderous and do some shit, but at least he had more people looking out for him as opposed to just being home where he was king and no one gave a shit what he did because it was his word and everyone else just followed it, you know? So he's still just going out having wild amounts of sex he's still out partying at bars and clubs and doing this and doing that and just kind of being king of the world because i'm tommy morrison these are all my subjects around me you know what i mean i can do whatever i want and get whatever yeah. so he's still really not like progressing even though he's bowling over these dudes now when he fights a guy like joe hip another dude he should be bowling over at this point in his career he's struggling not only does he struggle in life and death i mean life and fucking death with this man you know, first off, he breaks, I think, both almost both of his hands or one of his hands early in the fight. So that really fucks him up. Two, he gets his jaw broken in the fight. <laughs> like, and he starts getting his ass whooped. Like, it was a really, really tough one. But to Morrison's credit, and, uh, you know, to shut up the critics who were laughing at him for getting obliterated by Mercer, he fights through all of that to knock out a hit late in the fight. It's a beautiful, brutal, awesome fight that's on YouTube and should be worth watching. But that should show you his ceiling, too, that he has to go life and death with a guy like Joe Hip. Yeah, it's not a great sign. Like, you know, I mean, like if you're in his management team, you'd be like, good, you know, we got the win, but uh, we shouldn't be going life and death with that guy. You know, that's not that's not what we should be doing. But but he did get the win. He toughed it out. And that, like you said, was speaking directly to the critics who were like, you know, he's he's a white guy who can't fight. He's soft. You know, he doesn't he's not a real fighter or whatever. He can't respond to you already got smashed by Mercer. And so he fights through adversity. And we talked we could talk about this recently for Jared Anderson. You know, he obviously fighting through adversity against Charles Martin 
not great, but he did fight through it, but he did get through it. So, I mean, like you have to kind of put things into perspective too, and kind of give a win as a win. But, no, it's good for, I always think it's good for a prospect to get buzzed and have to go through some, like, you know, some hell before they have to pull through, pull out a win. It's good for them. But you, you know? do have to take into account, you know, who is it that they're struggling against? And so that's that, you know, it does matter, but it didn't matter as much for uh, Tommy Morrison, because at, at this point, I feel like they matched him pretty well and they knew what they were doing as far as guiding him back into a big fight. You know, they needed to just get him some wins, get him some confidence and and basically keep him out of trouble. Like you had said, the whole small town aspect of, of this plays a big part in Tommy Morrison's narrative where he's from this smaller place where everybody already knows him and he's kind of a bad boy, but an athlete and popular, whatever. But then after Rocky five, he's fucking massive. He's a huge celebrity. Uh, they mentioned this in the ESPN doc that they put up a sign. Uh, and also Carlos, I think mentions it too, and put up a sign out in front of his hometown. That's like hometown of Tommy Morrison. And so you become not just a big fish in the small pond, but it's like, dude, you're the only fish anybody ever fucking talks about. You wake up, you're getting calls because people want to come over and hang out all the way to the time you fucking go to bed. You never have to worry about people hanging out with you, wanting to be with you. Never have to worry about women. Everybody wants to buy you a drink. Everybody wants to throw themselves. Everybody's just doing something for you. Exactly. Like, you're town because celebrities. Yeah. And and even kind of they hint at it a little bit in the documentary, but like you go even to just Kansas City and comparatively, you're nobody. There's fucking thousands of Tommy Morrisons. Who gives a shit? Who are you? And so I think that that played into it too for Tommy Morrison that like he liked being he liked being the center of attention or the big fish in the small pond and that he also saw that like you know when you have to go out into the world that shit's hard dude you know you got to put more into it you can't just rely on your talent and rely on your athleticism and when you do you get smashed but still like I said as far as guiding him and managing his career they did a good job of guiding him back to a big fight and making sure he looked more legit. Carl, the truth Williams, another one of those guys who was a heavyweight from yesteryear, but that getting a, what's yeah, that? That was a great fight. And, and, you know, again, and a case of you probably should not be struggling in these kinds of fights, but you are getting the W, but now kind of cementing your status as like an exciting heavyweight is somebody who is kind of vulnerable, but you're going to put on a show. So again, you know, making it look like he's a commodity, like somebody to be watching. Oh yeah, absolutely. The Williams fight is one of the more um, underrated classics from the early '90s for the heavyweight division. It's like you think about it. Morrison has all of his defensive deficiencies, including just not being able to get out of the way of an uppercut. And then you have Carl the Truth Williams. Yep. <laughs> then you have Carl the Truth Williams, who poor guy, but never learned how to block a left hook in his life. Right. And so. Um, you put them two together, and right away, the first time Morrison touches him with a left hook, Williams goes splattering all over the ring. You know what I mean? Williams rallies back a little bit. Morrison, we talked about, can't block a right hand or an uppercut anything. Williams comes back because even though he has no chin and can't block a left hook, even at this point in his career, he's still, you know, well-equipped and schooled. And he lands his combinations, and Morrison looks like he's on the verge of death. And then they just go, you know, going back and forth until Morrison finally pulls through. Of course, he'd be a hot commodity. You can't beat that. That's must see TV. Like, you don't know what's going to happen in a Tommy Morrison fight. Either he's going to go out there and knock someone senseless, or he's going to go life and death with somebody that he should have knocked out senseless. So, either way, you're going to want to watch him. 
And that's that's exactly, I think, in a way, at least. Obviously, his, his team would have preferred, you know, a, a clearer path to like the heavyweight title or something. But nonetheless, you know, that there is something to be said for that. There is some there is some value in being that kind of fighter. But in any case, these wins guided him now into the lap of George Foreman. Good. And I mean, you know, George Foreman, there's still a lot of questions. We've talked about this version of George Foreman on more than one occasion. Uh, A lot of people from the late 80s into the early 90s were saying, you know, yeah, he's obviously more legit than we thought, but he's slow as hell, dude. He just takes a lot of punches. He winds up, you know, what is he's not he's never going to get there again but yeah he can get some wins so there's a lot of skepticism regarding George Foreman in some ways too even though like you know we've talked about the Holyfield fight was far better than a lot of people thought it would be etc so um but that being said George Foreman himself massive star around this time tons of endorsements mainstream endorsements got fucking I think McDonald's Midas uh he's I think his grill was right around this time too um you know, maybe a year or two after this, et cetera. So he's a mainstream star. And Tommy Morrison is considered, you know, still a lot of skepticism around him. And I think a lot of people thought, look, dude, if Foreman lands a shot, Tommy's going to bed. And I'm that sure was kind of, a lot of people didn't think that Tommy Morrison could really box him. I'm sure so that I mean, would be a lot too. Absolutely. You know, by this point, Foreman had lost three Vander Holyfield in a very spirited uh, title clash. Um, what was this, 1993? So Holyfield and Bo were in the process of like deteriorating each other in their careers. Um, Lennox Lewis was about to, you know, become a WBC champion and doing his thing. And that wasn't going to be a proposition for George. He was trying to follow. And so he thought that the WBO would be an easy route. You know what I mean? And finding a guy like Tommy Morrison even though he was dangerous and, you know, had a left hook or whatever, I'm sure Foreman saw him in the mold of another guy. He could easily bowl over because of his uh, defensive deficiencies and how he was and all that. Foreman knew he could take a punch. What he didn't um, anticipate, and I don't think anyone did at that matter, was that what people were expecting would be a knockout or some kind of like wild brawl was that Morrison would become a runner and a boxer, you know, and fight the most disciplined fight of his career for one night only. Um, was it that pleasing? No. There's like certain points in the fight Morrison literally runs away from Foreman. But it's like, Foreman, like you said, Pat, you know, he was so slow, so lumbering. Um, he was already far cry away from 1990 Foreman and the 91 version that challenged Holyfield from the belt. He was already much more lumbering at that point. And, and he um, took a lot of punches even just in that fight. Because I don't think he was anticipating that Morrison was going to fight like that, so he wasn't trying to have a chase for him. You know, he just couldn't. Just couldn't keep up. You know, like, he thought Morrison at least would stand stationary at one point, that he can land a 1-2, and Morrison would just go bye-bye. But that never happened. Instead, Morrison would come in, land a quick flurry, because he had really fast hands, jab out of there. And then, like you said, you know, sometimes you just see him kind of boop, 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 run away, and you see Foreman just... <laughs> yeah. You know, trying to you sweat kind of pissed top. at a few points. <laughs> And he said so definitely after the fight, too. He was clearly aggravated, saying that you can't win a fight from running and blah, 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 blah. But nah, Morrison boxed him, and you can't. There's no way that you can take that away from him. And immediately that made him a big player in the division. Because even though this was like a, a foreman that had lost a little bit of luster, 
over the past couple of years, he was still a huge name in the division and a guy that Morrison wasn't expected to beat. So now that he um, has beaten Foreman, this puts him on the cusp already. He now he has a belt as furious as it is. That's you know adds a little bit to the appeal, and he's a commodity. You know what I mean? He's a big name. He's popular. He's coming off the biggest win of his career, and there's going to be a lot of guys looking to bank off of that payday. Guys like Holyfield, guys like Bo, guys like Lennox Lewis. So that being said, Lennox Lewis is the one that um that gets that gets the uh, that gets the chosen one. You know what I mean? He's the one that's chosen for Morrison that this was that the big unification fight, so to speak. You know, um, first off, Morrison fights. This one should be mentioned, too, because this is a fucking fiasco. Morrison, first off, defends his title um, against, ends up defending his title, first off, against in Kansas City, against a guy named uh, Tim Tomasek. Tomasek. And Tomasek can go out on record for being, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Pat, um, the first title challenger to get a, any division to get a title fight while just sitting in the while I was just sitting in the audience that night, right? I think so. I mean, not. Yeah. I, I don't think it's ever. It's possible it's happened before, it's happened maybe like a hundred years ago or something. It happened since then. We talked about it once, but like, um, nah. I think this was the very first time that might have happened. Because what was that? Was that coincidence? Okay, it was Morrison was supposed to fight. Was it Mike Williams? Yeah. And Mike Williams. If you're wondering who that name is, he actually played Union Kane in Rocky Five. That was the heavyweight champion that Morrison knocked the fuck out of, you know, become champ and then feud with Rocky. So they had already kind of known each other. But Mike Williams was also um, a fighter himself, I guess, you know, a French contender. And they're scheduled to fight. I don't know what the what the whole ordeal was. It might have been a money issue, contract issue, something happened. But Mike Williams decided he was going to show up that day, so he did. And you know, they're in Morrison's hometown and seeing how popular Morrison is and they want to see him, you know, for a hometown defense. Excuse me. <laughs> they got to do something. And Tim Tomaszek, just local journeyman, you know what I mean? Kind of meddling guy who's been around a little bit, but someone who's just kind of gotten his ass kicked anytime he's possibly good. Happy to be sitting there doing whatever he's doing. Probably eat a hot dog or some shit, right? <laughs> and offer him some money. Hey, you want to fight for the title? Okay, sure. Gets in there, um, tries his best, but gets, you know, blasted out, stopped in, uh, what was it, four rounds or so, right? And then has one of the best post-fight interviews ever where he keeps on saying G. Golly or G. Golly Willikers or some shit like that, right? Dude, it was, it, the entire it was thing really was a fiasco. Fun. Yeah, it was an absolute fiasco. It was a top-ranked fiasco. That was one of the things they've been, like, kind of, you know, criticized about over the years, but he had a hilarious post-fight interview. He was being interviewed, I think, by Al Bernstein. He kept on saying, gosh, jolly, or gee, golly, well, something. Hopefully somebody can answer in the comments. But I'd have was, to go back and was, look at it. It's been it, was really, really, it was just like, it was really funny. But it was a whole fiasco and kind of like a stain of what his title reign would end up being. Because for a long time, that was like a trivia question. You know, like a like a trivia level kind of like, you know, here's a here's an unlikely fact, you know, type of thing. For a long exactly. time, that's kind of what it was. So, but that put a stain on what would be like an entire stain on his um, title reign. Because after that, like we said, he was scheduled now to fight Lennox Lewis. Um, there was going to be a long time period of a number of months before that fight was to take place. But that was worth $8 million. $8 million in 1993 is a lot of fucking money. That was going to be like their windfall factor, as Rick Elvis Parker would like to call it. And others, you know what I mean? Like that was, that was going to be the cash out. 
And you can think, okay, okay, so like Lewis and Morrison end up playing a few years later and Lewis beats them up and blah, blah, blah. The Lewis that was around in 19, what was that, 96, 95-ish, and the Lewis that was fighting in the early part and mid part of 1993 were still totally different fighters. Not to say he would have beat up Morrison, but there was a better chance of Morrison doing something with Lewis, who was still very vulnerable. Kind of like all over the place type mm-hmm. of shit, you know. Just didn't look good and would soon get exposed by Oliver McCall. But he has this fight in motion. And Morrison, because in part ego, in part because, again, he never left his hometown, so he just wants to like be the star of the show all the time. And he wants to give them another little hometown coming. He decides to have another intern fight. Everyone's just kind of like, don't do this, don't do this, it's not worth it, blah, blah, blah. And Morrison's insistent on it, it's going to be easy. So he ends up fighting a guy by the name of Michael Bent. And Michael Bent, you know, you look at his record, he was only 10 and 1, very unassuming, but he had a very substantial um, amateur career dating back to the 88, um, 88 Olympic trials. So he knew who Tommy Morrison was. I'm sure Morrison kind of knew who he was too, which is even more surprising that Morrison would be so willing to take this fight because Bent was, you know, showed his pedigree as an amateur. He was a very, very decorated amateur. That being said, when he turned pro, he got knocked out in his very first pro fight. So that might have played a little part into it, thinking they weren't going to mean, you know, mess with much. But Morrison, you know, again, he's hanging out home. This is his home count, uh, his homecoming fight, not really taking shit seriously, out crown vassing, probably smashing, drinking, doing what he's doing, whatever. And he gets in there, hurts Bent immediately in the fight with a punch. But as he tries to go on and flurry in, because as we said, square straight up, has his chin right there. Ben, um, Ben decides to flurry back with him. Ben has the faster hands and actually punches in, you know, straight up. Boop, boop, boop. Morrison's head goes like this. Then he drops, looking all confused and dazed. Two knockdowns later, one of the biggest upsets of the year, and Morrison loses eight million dollars. Yep, bro, I can't even imagine how pissed off his management must have been from that. I, I, I if I was there, dude, I, I, I don't even know how I would react. I'd probably put my head through a wall. <laughs> A couple of quick details is the the first one is that it was a three knockdown rule. Yep. And so, I mean, if he had been fighting in just about any other jurisdiction, I mean, he was hurt, but he 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 was recovered enough that he potentially could have gotten up and survived the round. I mean, I'm I'm not trying to create scenarios. I'm just saying. No, without, I agree. Without like, the three knockdown eyes, rule, like his eyes were still slightly there, but he was totally dazed. Yeah. No, he was hurt. Don't get me wrong. But with no three knockdown rule, it could have been different, maybe. Mm-hmm. So that's all I'm saying. However, uh, the other the other detail was that according to one of his friends, he said that the night before Tommy was out, quote unquote, at a concert drinking beer. Yep. And so, me being me, I was like, "What concerts were going on in Tulsa the night before?" George Strait. <laughs> so I think this motherfucker was at the George Strait show the night before in Tulsa. <laughs> I'm just saying, if I'm going full sleuth here, that ain't even that sleuthy. I just saw it and was like, huh, interesting. But anyway, um, that but that's what they said. It, it, whatever, dude. Regardless, it's kind of like you got to give Michael Bent the the credit for like, look, the opportunity came and he seized it. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, whatever shape Tommy Morrison was in, Michael Bent has to get that credit. But you cannot deny, however, that Tommy Morrison was like, as a person, you know, 
up in his head. He was imploding, dude. Uh, this megalomania, this fame, whatever, this idea that he had kind of come from not a whole lot and shot to fame in a fairly short period of time really messed with his head and didn't do him any favors in that regard. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that, that you have to say that that's a contributing factor in Tommy Morrison's demise and that this is just kind of another stop. Like he, he gets right back in and each, each time that he loses here, he loses to Ray Mercer and then he loses to Michael Bent. Both times he takes months off. Uh, you know, he says he's doing a lot of soul searching. He changes X, Y, or Z he starts over. He's doing this, he's doing that, you know, now he wasn't focused before, but now he's buckling down. Now he's changing his team or he's doing this. And that seems to be kind of like the MO as far as when he takes a loss or has a really bad fight or something like that. And again, they wind up guiding uh, Tommy Morrison toward a big fight. And specifically, obviously, the the object for any heavyweight fight is, or for any heavyweight fighter is going to be the heavyweight championship, regardless of whether or not that's a realistic dream or vision or not. And in Tommy Morrison's case, it was fairly realistic. He was a good enough fighter to get to get there it was just a lot of questions about whether or not he was good enough to defeat those fighters and so unfortunately we saw time and again that that was not really the case he runs through with one exception a number of kind of you know middling to lower level fighters except for ross purity who is just a nightmare for just about everybody the guy is just like stop fighting ross purity everybody jesus christ what are you thinking like Come on, dude. This fool's a nightmare. Giving everybody problems. Fucking Vladimir Klitschko. Come on, dude. It's terrible. Well, I, you know, the thing about Morrison is that whenever he suffered a major setback, the very first thing they would do, as a lot of fighters from the Midwest do, once they suffer a loss, is that they can go back on the circuit. There is a number of fighters that they can just bring in, and they can just go around and beat up anywhere they want. You know, it can be at the, the, Bradley Theater, the, Bra the Brady Theater in Tulsa. The Expo Square Pavilion in Tulsa, the State Fair Arena in Oklahoma City, Civic Assembly Center in Muskie Bell Casino. Yeah, yeah, you know, like, and there's a ton of opponents out there at your service that you can bring in and pad your record and fight once or twice a month, and for your fans and just build it up because eventually a guy like Morrison is gonna get another shot. You know what I mean? That's how they did it. That was the tried and true method, and they did it with anyone else from the Midwest scene back then. You know what I mean? It's a whole fascinating thing that guys you know switching names and doing this and got ends up having crazy inflated records like the guy we just mentioned earlier wimpy house that had over 70 something wins and only seven losses uh, a dude like marty Jackie yeah like the, that sounds like a fan you know you take that record to like 1960 and people are like whoa yeah whoa. yeah yeah like you see wimpy house did you see how he fought and you're just like wait a minute how the fuck does he fight yeah seven you mean you perfect? mean to tell me there are seven you know 70 people who are not as good at fighting as this <laughs> this man yeah exactly in, in that state like come on and then you see a dude like marty jack Ubowski, who was a welterweight junior welterweight from the 90s and better than Wimpy Halstead, but still, you know, like 130 something wins and like eight losses. And you're like, wait, wait, what? Huh? <laughs> yeah, how is that possible? Yeah, so it's it's a whole thing out there. You know what I mean? Morrison being a little more high profile than those guys, he could have pat himself into a 132 record like that. But, um, well, and, and also, real quickly, I'm sorry, one portion of this story too that also figures in is how shitty the commissions, the boxing commissions, and a lot of these states are, dude. Like, oh, yeah, especially you know, back then. They did not give a fuck. Yeah, our homeboy, Gray, Gray Johnson, you know, box rec editor, like, he could 100% confirm that, like, some of the states that we're talking about here are just, like, 
they're like almost harmful like when it comes to like their you know so that that figures into this here oh like you would see dudes back then for instance one time you know bruce the mouth not to veer off too much but like bruce the mouse strauss who was one of the more uh, celebrated journeymen of all time he got knocked out one one night by bobby ches on espn right on one of his few televised appearances and then like a uh, night or two later he was appearing at some other card and some guy recognized him on TV. He was like, hey, I saw this guy got knocked out on ESPN the other night. And, you know, like, Strauss turns around. Nah, man, that was my twin brother, the Moose. I'm the mouse. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, That's okay. Hilarious. Or, like, you know, or like yeah. Buck Smith, dude. Buck Smith. Yeah. Like, how, like, <laughs> there's, like, not a whole lot of video. Went on, but... a, like, on 118 win streak. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he holds like what you know one of like the top five knockout records or whatever and it's like there's yeah. like three videos of him like get out of here dude come on yeah. i mean the bucksmith's credit he actually has a win over kirkland lang and um in a former olympian but I, yeah that's that just that goes to show you man like it, it's it's really really just shameful and ridiculous yeah, records can be built you know we actually keep that in mind we should do a show with gray on like the whole midwest scene of the 90s because that's pretty fucking fascinating but this is what this is what he did. He almost has that hiccup, like you said, against Ross Purity, because Ross Purity, um, classic heavyweight journeyman. You know, the one of those guys that I absolutely love. That they have a bad record. You look at it and not knowing who they are, you're gonna be like, oh, he must be a trash bag. He can't do this and he can't do that. Far from it. All right, was Purity the the best boxer out there? No, but he was absolutely tough as nails. You couldn't hurt him, even if you took a bat and smacked him in the head with it strong as nails he had good stamina and he was just going to be there till the end and if you were like morrison that's probably kryptonite because morrison would just go in there and think he was going to score an early knockout was beating the shit out of Puri most of the times but again never changed his stance never changed his style never tried to change anything about it and purity was hitting him with stupid punches if you watch it it really are stupid punches that he had no business getting hit with like you know purity would take and throw some wild ridiculous uppercut and somehow Morrison would be right there for it. His head would get snapped back. And then Piercy would, you know, with all the essence of a bar brawler, would just go in and just, like, wail away, and Morrison would go down. And this was supposed to be a world-class heavyweight who only a year or two ago was beating George Foreman, and here he is going life and death with 8-8 Ross Purity. But it's like, it's, you know, like you said, Purity was really serviceable over the years. Like, no one was really able to stop him. He ended up being the first person to stop Vladimir Klitschko, who did the same thing of beating him up until he got too tired. And like, you know, it's one of those guys. And and also among, you know, uh, in 1995, you see, like, so that's a setback for Tommy Morrison. He takes some time off after that draw. So he got beat up, dude. Yeah, you know, like he, he got a draw, but he got beaten up in that fight, got sent to the deck a few times. And obviously he sounded like he had to do a little bit more, you know, soul searching or whatever. And so he takes some time off and then comes back and he's just like, boom, you know, fight every month, every other month, whatever, you know, four in a row leading him right to Donovan Ruddick, dude, Razor Ruddick. And that, I mean, obviously you brought that up earlier. It's one of those kind of like classic fights. I remember uh, trading fights in the early 2000s when that first started becoming a thing. That was one of the fights that like made its uh, made the rounds quite a bit because it was like a recent fight it was in good quality it was a fun fight you know two guys who were recent memory etc you know we talked about that before and it's a it's a nice fun heavyweight brawl we've talked about razor ruddock before too just a guy who was like you know uh was gonna be in a lot of really fun fights but just couldn't quite get over that hump uh two hittable 
and also on top of that, when Donovan Ruddick got hit, dude, that fool would just go like, Wah! you know, he was like <laughs> flying, bro. And, and, you know, that was a big problem too, was that when he got hit, like he, like Nassim Hamed, it just, it was so like Wah! exaggerated that a couple times he got stopped when he maybe should not have been stopped because he was just, Wah! you know, bouncing all over the fucking place. And that's kind of what happened against Tommy Morrison. But I mean, you know, Tommy Morrison had to go through some shit. I mean, it was a brawl, bro. Like, Ruddick had more or less kind of fallen off the wayside after losing, surprisingly, to Lennox Lewis in, what was it, 1992? Um, because he had the... When Ruddick first came up, you know, he, he had that devastating left hand that they called a smash. You know, he almost decapitated Michael Dokes. He beat up another... Oh, I was like, so, yeah, so... with the help of Arthur McCanty Jr. Yeah, an, an, another standout referee. Mm-hmm. Standing behind there again. What was what these dudes in the New York Atlantic Syria area back then? Dude just was just sitting there, like, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, watching them get fucking brutalized. Okay, that's enough. Now you can just So, um. Anyways, fuck. Now you make me think about that knockout. That was <laughs> no, Dan sticks in the memory a bit. It's it's rough. But well, no, I mean, Ruddick, Ruddick yeah, was a dude who one of those because he had that hybrid punch where he called a smash. It was like a hook uppercut where he just. If it landed, you know, that was your ass. But um, he had the two really brutal fights with Mike Tyson that enhanced his reputation, even though he lost both of them. Because the first fight was controversial and a stoppage. He had hurt Tyson a couple of times. And then the second fight, he got dropped twice, but lasted the decision, got his jaw broken. But, like, again, serviced himself well, fought on even terms a few times. It was very exciting, very good fight. Um, So by the time he fought... Lennox Lewis, he was a favorite in that fight, I would assume. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, Lewis was the undefeated Olympian and had been featured a lot on HBO and in America and yada, yada, yada. But, like, Ruddick was the name, you know? And, like, it wasn't a WBC heavyweight title fight, but it was like the Ken Norton, Jimmy Young thing. They were just going to kind of retroactively give you the belt. So, anyways, Lewis splatters him. And, like you said, the way Ruddick from, just... From Bo dumping the belt in the trash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way he just kind of drops, like, face first and kind of, like, you know, a fish out of water looking at everything. Poor guy. Just never can just get dropped normally. Um, he, he he took off for a bit. And you didn't really see much for then. So this was definitely a crossroads fight for him and Tom Morrison. And even though the activity favored Morrison, Ruddick and his dangerousness and his explosiveness and everything, I'm... I don't know if he might have been the favorite in this fight. If it was like kind of like even money, you just knew someone was going to get knocked out. You know what I mean? Whoever was going to lose, this was probably going to be the end of them. And early on, it looked like it was going to be Morrison because, again, he just can't block. You know, he just, guy couldn't block an uppercut in certain punches and save his life. He just kind of walked straight in. And if you're able to time him, you were going to catch him. Like walk, like catching ball bull or some shit. You know what I mean? And you would just hit him and Morrison right away. Right, I caught him on an uppercut, that same punch he always got hit with. Morrison's legs start doing a doopy dip. He hits him with a few more shots, and Lawrence just goes down looking brain scrambled, kind of looking like he did against Michael Ben. But one thing you can't say about Morrison is that he never had heart, you know, because immediately he got up and they started trading, and then he had Ruddick dropped, and then that's when it started. Yeah, and it, it kind of just it it kind of degenerated, like you know, into a brawl. It wasn't really, it wasn't like there was no skill. I think there was somebody on that documentary had said like, "Oh, there was no skill. It was a street brawl." That's not true, you know. Like it was, it wasn't like low level shit. Shit wasn't, you know, Leo Cicero here. Shit was, yeah, but it yeah, was, yeah, exactly. 
but it was a brawl. It did definitely, clearly it started becoming like, you know, both fighters were hurt. Both fighters had been rattled and they're kind of starting to fight on instinct and just smacking at each other and shit. But a big part of the problem was that Tommy Morrison, even when he threw uh, combinations, was so open that if you threw with him, yep, dude was cooked, dude. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened, dude. It was Ruddock threw kind of in between one of his punches and just bloop, same thing that, uh, same thing that Michael Bent did. And right as he was punching, you know, but bam, you know, he just fucking went down. And then it's like Tommy Morrison, even though he had a lot of heart, you know, his legs, once his legs started going, dude, it was, it was almost kind of like a ticking time bomb. It's just a matter of time you know, until he had like nothing. And luckily he kind of pulled that shit out of the bag against Razor Ruddock. So he, after he had gone down, he had already knocked Ruddock down and then he goes down and gets hurt. And then right toward the, uh, in the sixth round, toward the end of the round, Ruddock, goes after Morrison and right as he's kind of going after him, Tommy lands his fucking Sunday punch. He lands, he does it back to him. Ruddock's in the middle of throwing and he just bam hits him with a left hook that lands perfectly. And not only does it land perfectly, Ruddock's in the act of throwing his own hook. So his momentum kind of like swings him around and, you know, like swings him in a weird way. And there's stills of the knockdown where his leg is like hyper extended, like bent yes. the wrong way. You know, it's like, uh, you know, yeah. it, it was, it was the hell of a fucking knockdown and to the it, point where they, you know, the, the clickbait YouTube videos are like Tommy Morrison obliterates Razor Ruddock. And then there's the photo of him on the ground. And it's like the fight actually didn't end there, even though it seems like it should have. It didn't. Ruddock got up somehow. Holy shit! But it was—he was clearly hurt. Theory that like it adds to a theory that you can be knocked out and then be awoken by the canvas. That's kind of what happened. Yeah. Like Larry Holmes with Ernie Shavers. Like kind oh. of thing. he got hit with a hook. He got hit so hard that his head bounces off the can. Like hard, it bounces. Just boosh. And as it does, his eyes are like open up. He's still clearly gone, but like he's you know, from the, the force of the knockout knocking him to another spectrum, he got brought back. And he got, he got up on instinct. It was clear instinct. He had no idea where he was, what was going on. But I will say this, had Ron Lipton not stopped the fight and let, you know, Morrison and let um, Ruddick go on, there's a good chance Morrison would have been done because he, when Morrison ran after him to finish him, he's there. They had a minute break. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the end this, of the round was coming up right then. Yeah. And Morrison was shooting everything he had left in him. And you know, Morrison, all you got to do is let him throw 15 punches and he's going to be wheezing for the next five rounds. So it's like, Ruddick it's not impossible. Yeah. Ruddick even said something to the effect after the fight, too. He was like, they shouldn't, you know, it was like, I can't believe they stopped it. I could have gone on. He said, next round, I would have knocked him out. There's a good chance he would have. <laughs> Who I, knows? I, I can't dispute it that much. The evidence yeah, is already you know? there that it could happen. So, But that being said, Morrison, you know, it is what it is. That Morrison got, you know, one of the biggest wins of his career. Uh, the biggest win of his career besides after Foreman. And full circle ahead, guess what? He gets the Lennox Lewis fight against after that. These bigger fights that he got to a, a big problem was again not making excuses for him. I I wasn't there. I don't know what happened, but a big problem with these bigger fights is that they were like they took months to happen, and it was like leaving Tommy to his own devices for months. It, they even said, you know, his trainers, his handlers, managers, his promoter on the documentary in the book everywhere they say, you know, basically having to babysit this guy is tough. 
you can't make him and no fighter, you know, you can't make them do shit. They're grown people. And, you know, some fighters, some people have discipline. Mm -hmm. Some don't, uh, you know, he obviously had enough discipline that he could train and get himself into like, you know, enough shape, but he didn't have world-class discipline. He did not have championship discipline, you know, and that's discipline on another level. And, you know, some fighters, some fighters do have that discipline and still don't get to that level. Uh, he got, he got there, or almost got there on just talent, dude, you know? And so it takes several months, but he gets back in with Lennox Lewis. You can even see like body wise and shit around this time in 1995 that he looks like a different fighter. Like, you know, he, he looks like he's probably been using performance enhancers for like several years at this point. Um, but also he's got like no stamina, dude. Um, that's a big part of the problem. And Lennox Lewis was a fighter who was like at this point in 1995 was not really looking to mess around a whole lot, at least not in this fight. And I, and Lennox Lewis, when he thought you were dangerous was the type of fighter that was like, Whoa. Mm -hmm. And at this point too, Lewis, he had just joined Emmanuel Stewart for his, um, I think this was his third fight in or so. And because after he lost to Oliver McCall, Oliver McCall was trained by Emmanuel Stewart. Lewis, I was saying, gets rid of Pepe Correa, rightfully so, and embarks now on his, um, you know, on his new comeback. And he was still a work in progress, but at the same point, he's still young and he's still really dangerous. And Morrison is withered. He's been around a long time. All of his outside the ring activities, all this stuff, like you're hoping for a miracle, but like the writing's on the wall. And and right in the first round, within the first minute, you already see what's going to happen in this fight. Again, you alluded to it too earlier, Pat, and we've talked about it, that Morrison would always talk about being a new person. He's new and reborn. And he's done X, Y, and Z in his training now and whatever, and found God and blah, 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 right? Whatever, right? And so he said the same thing before this fight. You're going to see a new Tom Morrison. I got new perspective on life and all this other shit. Uh, it doesn't matter, man. He could have brought God into the ring with him that night. He still was going to get cooked. And that's exactly what happened, man. You know, it was, I watched it live as a kid and I was cheering for Morrison because I watched the Ruddick fight and I was a Morrison fan. And I was hoping for, I mean, I wasn't like no expert thinking that like, oh no, this is like, you know, he doesn't have a chance in hell. I thought he did. I didn't know much about Lennox Lewis like that. I thought Morrison could still knock anybody out. And within a minute, too, me being a novice fan, I just kind of saw the writing on the wall. I was like, oh, shit, my man's about to get whooped. <laughs> like, it was it was bad. Lewis, Morrison couldn't do a thing with him. Like, he would try to box him. That wasn't going to work. He tried to move in close. Nothing could work with him. Like, he was passive. He just couldn't. He yeah, he couldn't slow. get past Lennox Jab. Hey, he couldn't do anything. And the, you know, the few times he landed a punch here and there, he got Lewis's attention. And you were like, oh, you know, maybe he could do something. It would make you think again, if had they fought back in 93, what Morrison could potentially have done to him. But nah, Lewis, you know, was on his way to being the undisputed heavyweight champion. Morrison clearly was not. And it became a bad beating. It was really bad. After a while, it was just like Morrison's eye was swollen yeah. up and Lewis was treating him like a heavy bag before it eventually got stopped. Yeah, Morrison's eye was swelled up he started to look like his face might start falling apart a little bit. You know, he's starting to get beaten up and then he gets knocked down and you get the classic mills lane, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no. Yep. <laughs> he's all, no, 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 no. Like, Cause he's like, he's saving Tommy from himself. You know, like he was just like, dude, what are you doing? It was interesting. Mills was refereeing that fight too. Cause he was a Nevada, uh, Nevada referee. 
what about what you what was the first part you said? I said it was interesting. Millis Lanes was the referee for that because he was a Nevada rep. Yeah, well, you know, and it and uh, oh, I guess this was would this would have been before the this was Atlantic City. Yeah, so. well, and this would have been before Holyfield Tyson too. Also, oh, yeah, not that yeah. he was not known before then, but he really became known after that fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they, from what mm-hmm. I think they said, something was that like Larry Hazard or something was trying to bring in. I don't know what he was trying to do, but he was trying to just bring in more of a mix of people. Some some shit. I I don't know what the I mean, reason was behind. Mills was respected, people. you know, like he was. A respected know, yeah, Mills was known. Was, Mills was known for being like good with heavyweights too. So like he put on a good job in that fight. Knock that shit off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cut Gosh, it out. <laughs> Knock it off. Yeah, he he wasn't playing around. Fucking throw Bernard Hopkins out of the ring. Fuck off, Bernard. Stop the fight. There's a goddamn limit to everything, you know. Caught him bites. <laughs> he bullshit. You bet him twice. Bullshit. Bullshit, yeah. yeah. Yelling bullshit in Mike in Mike Tyson's face as he's angry. He's got some fucking balls, bro. Hey, what was Mike gonna say to him? Mike knew he, oh, you know, Mike wasn't really thinking either. But we're actually about to bring up Mike in a second because the very last leg of Tommy Morrison's career is gonna, you know, mention this. And so, but yeah, I mean, it's just I guess Mike figures heavy into pretty much everybody everybody's agenda at that time. Absolutely, he does, you know, because after this, again, this was a bad one. This is a bad loss. Morrison is kind of at the end of the rope. You know what I mean? Sure, he still has a name, but you get the sense Morrison is not willing to be one of those guys that's just going to be added to someone's um, resume. And the heavyweight scene at this point, going into 95, that's probably what was going to be the case. You know what I mean? There was only going to be up-and-coming guys that are going to want to add to it. And... So you had, um, you know, Tony Holden, who was Morrison's promoter, manager, advisor for almost his entire career, um, decided to make a last-ditch effort and said, you know what, I'm going to call up Don King and see if Don will use him. And, of course, Don King would use him. I wouldn't even be a question. Don King in the 90s getting a chance to have a white White heavyweight for me to use. (laughs) Popular? Big, you know, big puncher? Sure. Sure. Why not? I'll see what I can do. <laughs> yeah, let me well, see if I got room for lunch the other, the other couple of days. Yeah. Don must have been salivating. Absolutely. You know, this is 1995. This is the end of 1995. Mike Tyson is out of jail now. Um, he's he's with Don, and Don is just seeing dollar signs that he can, like, build us up to a Mike Tyson, Tommy Morrison pay-per-view, right? So he says, yeah, yeah, I'll sign your guy. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, contract, big multi-million dollars. Everything's going to be good. And so it's that, you know, Morrison gets another lifeline on his career and all roads are going to be led to a head to a potential Mike Tyson fight and probably in 1996 at some point. Right. Which would have been massive. You and I would both agree. That would have been massive and probably fun for the round. It would have lasted, but um, yeah. So by that point, um, his first fight was going to was going to be against a guy by the name of uh, Arthur Weathers. And if you ever heard the name Arthur Weathers, again, just an absolute, you know, just a journeyman, even below journeyman of the ones that we usually talk about on the show. But a guy probably best known for being knocked out in, I think, what, seven, eight seconds by Jeremy Williams. So if you ever heard of him, that's probably why. Anyways, you know, not unlike Morrison's latest comeback opponents, that was just going to be a soft touch for him to get back into the winning track. Only this time it wasn't going to be held in the soft confines of Oklahoma or Kansas City or 
whatever like that it was going to actually be you know somewhere in vegas i think actually on a probably on a showtime card at that so everything's set up um and then the controversy stops yeah i mean and there's there's a lot of kind of mystery surrounding the timing on some of this uh carlos brings it up in his book they talk about it very briefly on the espn documentary but um you know it's said that Tommy Morrison knew for a couple of years that he had HIV um, or I should say that he suspected for a couple of years that he had HIV, but had never been tested. And you have to remember to, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the testing that is done now for boxers is not something that used to happen all the time. It used to be like, you know, special circumstances if somebody got tested to that degree like it was some ex-fighter who was coming back and so they were doing brain scans they were doing all sorts of shit you know these days a lot of that stuff is done you know mandatorily you know above a certain level and in most states um but back then you know a lot of a lot of that stuff was you know it, it was a mystery and that being said just as Tommy Morrison is getting his physical done for his fight. You know, they're drawing blood. I guess it's something that he said he didn't have time to do for years or just hadn't done, hadn't gotten around to. Like I said, some people suspected that he knew yeah. for years and that he, that's why he had never gotten tested. Uh, but nonetheless came back positive for HIV that shut down the fight and obviously put his future as a fighter and as a person uh, in jeopardy. I, and like I said, right around this time was right really when I became, you know, uh, familiar again with Tommy Morrison. And around this time in 1995, like we're only a few years after Magic Johnson being diagnosed and, you know, publicly coming out that he had HIV, um, you know, all the way into the 2000s, people were making jokes, you know, about like Magic Johnson and his HIV status to the point where it was like, you know, that shows you, you thought somebody was going to die if you, if you got HIV. Oh, that was and, a death sentence. Absolute death sentence in the 90s. It didn't yeah. matter if you found out you knew, if you knew someone that had it or you heard news about someone that had it. Like it was. Yeah, there were enough celebrities who had already died. Absolutely. You know, and, I remember, I, I remember as a kid. I I met someone, I didn't even know it either. I was playing with him at the play place at McDonald's. My parents were like friends with his mom or something. And like we like we played together and stuff. And he was a nice kid. And then we left and my parents were like, oh, you know, they told me afterwards they're like, oh, he has HIV. And I was like, wait, what? But they were like, cool, me playing, because they did they already knew, you know what I mean? That like, wasn't like I was playing in a fucking ball pit together, nothing was gonna happen, right? Yeah, you you guys weren't cutting each other with blades oh, and hugging like, or something, you know. It's like Yeah, and like that was the first time I was like, wow, like, okay. Like, I thought that was interesting. And then I read like a year or two later, he died. And I was like, fuck. And, um, you know, but yeah, back then that was, that was just no, you know, that was, that was it. Like magic. Yeah. It was just a matter of time and you were just, just buying yourself time. time if you were rich. And then magic, you know, it wasn't just like, you know, sports celebrities. You had the dude from, um, the real world. Pedro, uh, yeah, I don't remember. Oh, gosh, I can't remember his name, but yeah, yeah, the Cuban dude. Yeah, him. Um, the Olympic swimmer who I think is still alive, Greg Luganis. Um, there was a lot, you know. Rock Hudson. 
Rock Hudson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the um, the dude from um, uh, Freddie Mercury. Yep. Yeah, and probably then he, the most famous. Yeah. He's he, like there was you know, and the way these guys passed though, because like Magic Johnson was the exception. Freddie Mercury that when obviously he had it a lot longer, but then before he announced it, but when he announced it, he died immediately afterwards. Easy announced it like only a few days later. I think he seemingly passed away too. Like you just associated that. Like it was yeah. scary. It wasn't until probably like the late nineties where it started to be like, Hey, like, you know, these people can use like anti-retrovirals and shit where they can like, they're living fairly normal lives. Like, dude, we didn't really know that shit yet. Mm -hmm. Magic was the first one. I believe that was like showing that where he started and we were just kind of like, wait a minute. Well, I think he's going to live now. Not even make that seem like make that as a light of thing, but like as the actual truth, like, wow, he's okay. Yeah. No one. Yeah. Like just to, and also, you know, we've gotten kind of far enough into this episode. We're toward the end just to kind of make sure and reiterate. I didn't say it earlier that like, we're not here laughing about any of these circumstances. No, either, no, 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 no. This is all very tragic stuff. But like this, you know, when Morrison got hit with it, that was like, holy shit, this was like scary. And it was huge in the news because at this point he was the biggest, me, I would say he's right up there with, I mean, sports celebrity right up there. He was right up there with MJ, uh, Magic Johnson as the biggest one that came, that was, you know, diagnosed and come out with it. And yeah, that was big, big news. Um, it was all over the news. It was all over the different networks. It was everything. And Morrison was making the rounds. And, you know, he um, he had that famous speech where he came out and it said that, you know, he tested positive. He said, if you think of me as a role model, don't think of me as that. Think of me as the person that should have been one that like kind of failed or some shit like that. Right. And basically admitted his own faults. Like he admitted it, knew what was going on and like accepted the fact at this point, this is a big key here, accepted that he was HIV positive. Because later on, that won't be the case, unfortunately. But at first, he accepted it and tried to, like, figure out how he was going to go about his life with, you know, with this uh, with this new diagnosis. And, you know, clearly it was, like, it was tough, you know, early on. Like, he was still getting in trouble. It was a lot of out-of-the-ring activity stuff that he was continuing early, you know, while he was doing his career. But it was, like, because he was adjusting it. It was, like, really depressing. And all of a sudden, you get this news that's practically, like you said, a death sentence. And you really don't know where to turn or how to like proceed with this shit. But eventually, you know, he starts making waves with his management team and figuring things out where it's like, okay, I can go to the doctor here. They can die. They can um, give me this. I can try to do this, try to do that. Like there was some path to a, to a way. Also being a celebrity, it was much easier, especially back then for him to have access to things that the average person did not have any chance of even totally. obtaining. You know, yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, and it, it it that's that's really what's kind of perhaps not the saddest thing, but definitely among the sad things in the story is that it seemed that right after his diagnosis that he had an opportunity to serve as a cautionary tale in a way that he seemed willing to do, like that he seemed willing to be like, Hey, let me teach you guys what not to do. And uh that just was destroyed. Um, you know, look, I think part of the tra tragedy here is we talked about his upbringing and just uh, without going into all the details, he didn't have any support, dude. He didn't re have any real family support. His dad was fairly typical of fathers right from around this time, cold, emotionally, um, you know, somebody who would encourage, encourage misogynism, somebody who would, um, you know, kind of take a hard line 
on his parenting and but otherwise kind of hands off and his mom was the same where she would kind of stay hands off yeah and you basically know, I, their 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 most disciplined thing they were told is use your best judgment he didn't have any support dude he didn't really have anybody teaching him how to be a human being and and i i, I know people like that i've grown up with friends that like their parents we come like, we come yeah. from an era not too long after that so of course we know you know like yeah i knew i have a few friends like i remember i had a couple of friends who definitely got into a lot of trouble and you know and fell into some heavy devices because vices because they they just told me like straight up by the time they were like 13 or 14 their parents just did not give a shit about what they did and they were just kind of left to their own accord and when you're left on your own at that point you start into shit bro yes because you start developing your own sense of morals and values and this and that and whatever you want to come to and your own sense of things as opposed to kind of like having a groundwork and someone kind of guiding you along the way you get your own ideas and usually they're not good ones especially if you just kind of left out into the streets so it's like you know yeah the 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 friend influence is not good in that regard and you know with when he had no support as a person and as like you know a younger a younger person or whatever and then uh goes from not having that support to all of a sudden having all sorts of support and having people around him all the time and wanting to be around him all the time right and then gets diagnosed with a a virus a disease that people are you know still misunderstanding and probably you know like you know you go to shake his hand and very people are like oh you know, ooh. Yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. and all of a sudden it's like you're not all of a sudden you're not really like a human being anymore and all of a sudden people you're like a pariah you're a fucking leper and i think that that can have a really profound emotional uh emotional effect on especially somebody who's already emotionally stunted already had a lot of things happen to him or, you know, upbringing that was not correct or was kind of mistaken. And so he goes just from bad to worse. He goes after this uh, diagnosis with HIV becomes, you know, totally detached. He was doing well for a while. And then I think they had said he had moved from, I think, Kansas City to some other town, uh, Fayetteville or something like that and when they had done that that it was like all of a sudden he just became like a fucking conspiracy theorist all of a sudden he had gone from taking meds and doing well and managing his HIV to like you know in fairly quick order uh, one things that we did not mention was among his womanizing he was at one point married to two women at the same time both of them named Dawn I mean, he was just, he was involved in too much stuff. He married, he married one in Vegas, and I think he took the other one to Mexico or something. Yeah, or Canada or Mexico or something like that. Yeah. And, and, and then so, they found out about each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they wound up both splitting with him. And yeah. then right around this time, he, they, they said that they had kind of detached from him because he started getting into drugs. And that's when he had hooked up with, I can't even can't believe i'm saying her name because she's gonna attack 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 when this yeah. episode gets published but this will not be named <laughs> oof yeah trish trish oh, whatever her name is good job pat sorry bro but i had to say it just tonight, for, for, for for facts for the for the love of facts change your change your address you oh might get god some- yeah uh she participated in 
Tommy Morrison's delusion that HIV was not real, that it was a conspiracy and that he did not have it. And on top of that, he had gotten arrested for possession of weapons and methamphetamines. And I mean, look, I'm not trying to be an asshole here, but when somebody gets into drugs like that, their looks change. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like... Like, and I'm not talking about like, you know, like, oh, they've got some wrinkles now. Like the the structure of their face and shit changes. Mm. And like the looks in their, the look in their eyes changed, dude. You could see like the footage from the ESPN thing, you know, and he's like in court and like they're trying to talk to him and his eyes look like the emptiest fucking eyes you ever imagined, bro. Mm. Uh, you know, and these, the, these things are like self-feeding, these delusions and so the only thing he's doing is getting worse and worse and worse and falling deeper into this delusion. And on top of that, it's at one point in the mid two thousands was making a comeback. He got pec implants, yeah, bicep yes. implants. Like the, the comeback thing is the craziest part of that too, is because like you said, through all this, at first Morrison was, you know, taking his meds. All right. Like he seemed like in the mid nineties, late nineties. Yes. He was getting to a lot of altercations outside of the, like, um, you know, getting uh, above the law and getting in trouble, getting arrested for various infractions, whether it was assault, whether it was drug possession, being drunk in public, doing dumb shit. I remember at one point reading in a Ring magazine that, like, he was at a gas station and drove off with a pump still in his car, I think. And, like, yeah. ripped it out and just drove like that before he got arrested. Like, crazy shit, you know what I mean? And, but yeah, like, as wild as he was getting, he always held on the belief that he was still going to come back to the Ring, too, because that was what he knew. That is what all he knew. You know, he did try to do some outside of the ring ventures after um, after being diagnosed. Like he tried to become a speaker and doing that a little bit. That completely fell apart. Yeah, he got um, a DUI on the way home from one of his speaking yeah, jobs. One of his speaking jobs, yeah. Um, at one point, he got hired as an analyst, I think, for the for do Showtime pay-per-views or something like that. Because you see him even in documentary, he's there with Jim Hill, who was the host of all of those Showtime pay-per-views in the 80s and 90s, and they're co-hosting it together. And Morrison was articulate. You know, you ever listen to him in his interviews when he was sober and talking and well, he was a very, very well-spoken guy who, you know, had a had a good sense of who he was and what was going on. And it, it seemed fairly honest too. Like he, he, he was extremely honest. Yeah, yeah. He generally seemed honest, you know? So, you know, you, you got a good sense of him and you were like, okay, like he would probably be good at that job. But again, he just couldn't keep it together, you know? And Within two gigs of that, he gets arrested for a DUI and he loses that job too. So he couldn't really keep anything. All he knew was fighting, but you can't fight if you have HIV. So he's going to have to try to do something about this. Um, first, he gets a break in the 90s. We um, we kind of skipped over this, but like after he gets a diagnosis after like a year or two, he ends up somehow on some crazy way getting put on the undercard of George Foreman Crawford Grimsley in fucking Tokyo, Japan. And... Um, the reason why that fight was the reason why Morrison was able to fight out there was because Japan. I don't. I don't think they even had an AIDS, uh, an HIV test. They didn't care, right? That was the story. So, and and on top of that, Japan's had their own issues with their boxing commission going back a long way. Like they didn't oh, recognize yeah. certain sanctioning bodies for a number of and, years, yeah. and yeah, it's so it was it was just like it was easy for Morrison to be able to insert himself in there. And knowing that the promotion was going to be struggling as it is, because who the fuck is going to watch to watch George Foreman beat up uh, Crawford Grimsley, who was a surfer guy with blonde hair, best known for getting obliterated by Jimmy Thunder. Um, I mean, adding Morrison, who has HIV, this is 
the mid nineties when the height of it is still a lot of unknown and people are going to be curious. Yeah, that'll definitely add some curiosity to the pay-per-view. Um, so they put Morrison in with a guy named Marcus Rohde, who was just one of those Midwestern journeymen that Morrison used to feast on back in the day. And Morrison blows him out completely, you know, really relatively quickly, right? Morrison's excited now. He thinks he's back on the comeback trail. He thinks he's going to get more fights from this. And there was even talk of him fighting Foreman potentially in a rematch. Because Foreman was like, well, you know, because Foreman saw dollar signs there. And he, he, was a, he was a businessman. He wasn't stupid. And he thought to himself, okay, well, if I can be confirmed that X, Y, and Z is not going to happen, I'm willing to gladly take it on. But clearly none of that happened because Morrison did not fight for a number of years. Um, fast forward now into the 2000s, the mid-2000s, like you said, Pat. Morrison now started becoming a denialist, outright saying he never had it, that it was a false positive, that it was this and that, blah, 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 and that everything he was doing is just bullshit and that it was the medications keeping him sick, not actually having HIV and all this crap. So he looks healthy, right? I mean, I know because it was the implant. Like, he looks healthy. He looks like he's in shape. He's, you know, doing his thing and all that. And <laughs> God damn it, boxing being, being the sport that it is, they're willing, they really will willing be willing to look over that and be like, well, maybe if he is a positive, maybe he's right. There's still money here. It's Tommy Morrison. And guess who was the one that was thinking about that? Bob Aaron. Like, you see you shaking your head because, you know, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. You know, Aaron funny in anything. <laughs> it takes him to West Virginia, so confident in his abilities that he takes him to the bustling commission of West Virginia. <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it ain't no Sun City, you know. But yeah, yeah, right. And this was against uh, the was it John Castle? Right? John Castle, yeah, the old four and two John Castle. And I mean, this is what Aaron was doing. He was like, well, if there's money to be involved here, and, the, and then you hear Trampler, Bruce Trampler, the, um, the mat, head matchmaker of top rank, and others going, well, if he could prove he's good, then we'd love to work with Tommy again. Sure. You know, we had good business one back in the day, and blah, 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 blah. It, plus, it would be a huge story, don't you think? And so, um, yeah, they they do that. And then that fiasco ends, and it, it didn't even get aired. That was that was the main thing about it, is that it didn't get aired. I think that was on the same card as... um. But was that the same one that the dude that just Joe Macy was he on that car too? Gosh, I don't. I'd have to look now. I'm about to look. No, I'm, I'm gonna look right now. Yeah, so. I guess so. Verkan. Oh wow, Verquan Kimbrough. I haven't thought about him in a long time. Sheesh. Yeah, yeah, Joe Macy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, hold on. Yes, yeah, so Toledo. God damn. What, what names on there? Monty Meza Clay, remember him? Hell yeah, dude. Damn, I, yeah, he was a little scrapper. Yeah, he was. He was definitely. So, all right, that's yeah, that we're, was, we're getting distracted. Yeah, but I mean, that was like that was Aram right there trying to exploit, just not giving a shit. And so after Morrison wins that, they want to you know try to do a few other things, and they have plans for him. But now becomes a reoccurring thing. All he has to do because they're going to other jurisdictions now that are actually going to try to enforce a goddamn blood test, right? The, the simplest is the simplest of things. Morrison will be like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. And then keeps on coming up with excuses why he can't do it. And they're like, well, we have this fight scheduled. You're saying you're healthy. Why can't you just conform to a blood test? And then he would come up with some reason why saying he can't do that. There's some kind of conspiracy. There's this or that or he can't. And each time it would look like something's about to happen. It wouldn't because, you know, the he wouldn't do it, you know, and then things would fall through. And 
he was supposed to fight one time in um she's with texas and dickie cole who was um the commissioner out there said we'd love to he was like i would love to, to sanction morrison all he has to do is just provide a blood test he was like once he does that and it comes out fine we're good he was like he won't do it you know nothing you can do and, and, and just to it. be clear here, this is not people who are going like, you know, really concerned about Tommy Morrison. These are people who are far more concerned about the idea of an HIV positive Tommy Morrison somehow getting his opponent HIV positive and that happening in their state and that being a massive fucking issue. They're far exactly. more worried about that, to be clear. Yeah, yeah. They don't really give a shit about Morrison in general, but they're just kind of like. Oh, you know, whatever. And then each time, though, he's not doing it. He won't do it for X, Y, and Z reasons. And eventually, Aram and them just kind of fall out with this because it's like, what, what can we do? You know what I mean? And he finally surfaces again on, what was that? I got to have the box right up. Hold on. He's on a card in Mexico. He's on a card in Mexico. It was also Julio a top ranked card. On a Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. undercard. Yeah, yeah. also a top ranked card. Yeah. yeah, it was a top ranked card. So Aram wasn't done with him yet. Excuse me. <laughs> Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, and it was also Beltron. So I, I think that's Zanfer too. It was it was top rank in Zanfer, I believe. Yep, 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 yep. Beltron and Barbera. Mm -hmm. And out in Mexico, you know, where obviously the um testing is much more lenient. Yeah. More so they, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no good. No good. Yeah. Really? It's like it's crazy to think that. And so like Morrison clearly five had years a, before he died. Yeah. And at this point, like, he's not, like, he's bad. Like, he's in really bad shape, you know? <laughs> and, um, fuck, man, it, it's crazy. It's just, it's yeah. absolutely crazy. Because at this point, when you when you see Morrison, he doesn't look like the same guy you remember. Remember the guy with the blonde hair and the whole, you know, the look and everything like that? Now, he only wears a bandana. Yep. He's got that. He has like a weird goatee that just looks old and withered. His, his skin what's, is what's black. the fucking what's the what's the dude from uh Rock of Love? Oh, Brett. Brett Michaels, except Brett, he has yeah, he's because he's yeah, always yeah, wearing yeah, the yeah, bandana because yeah, he's yeah, balding yeah. and he just won't take it off. That's Tommy Morrison now. And when I met Morrison at the Hall of Fame around that time, uh, I couldn't tell you what year it was, maybe 06 or something like that. Um I same thing. He was wearing the bandana. He had he was wearing like eyeliner. Skin was looking kind of old, and you know. He just, really, yeah. He really leaned into the eyeliner thing. I don't yeah. understand why, but he really he was did. Wearing a, he was wearing a muscle shirt, a long sleeve muscle shirt that was like clearly, you know, showing off his uh, implants, his pecs, and his shoulders, and all that stuff. But to tell you, bro, I was still in awe. Like I don't get awed out by a lot of guys, but for whatever reason, I told you I've always been a Morrison fan when I was a kid, and so finally getting to meet him for the first time was pretty cool for me. And I was like, oh man, like he came on stage. I was like, holy shit, Tommy Morrison. <laughs> and <laughs> he came up and gave me a handshake. Hey, what's up, buddy? You know, being, he was really, really nice. You can't like, even through all that, he was really cool and nice. And I got to like, you know, grass, grease up his hand and talk about his fights with him while holding it. And that made me excited because I don't know, Morrison was one of my guys as a kid. But that being said, being up close with him, I can clearly see how sick he really was. And he didn't look good, you know? Like, I knew that much. I wasn't that odd out yeah. that long, like, aware of, like, man, he doesn't, you know, he looks kind of ill. Yeah, he didn't look normal, dude. And, I mean, I'm not trying to, again, I'm not trying to be mean or cruel, but, like. I'm not. I'm just when giving people, you what it is. When people get, like, a lot of work done, like, and especially if it, like, doesn't quite fit your body type, like, you get a BBL and that shit doesn't fit right, 
you get fucking, you know, some sort of implant or guys get X, Y, or Z done and it just doesn't fit well. That's what it looked like, dude. You know, it just, it just doesn't look right. And he's got like, he's got these pec implants that are like way the fuck up here. And like, they're like fucking sticking out like five inches. And then at one point he had uh bicep implants, but they were like, you know, they like didn't take because he had gotten it done by supposedly an ear, nose and throat doctor. That's what I was going to say. Some guy that had no business doing anything at all, but doing some kind of implants and doing shit like that. And, and I mean, oh, if you, you've seen the photos, there's videos out there. It's in the documentary. I saw it up close. You see, like, there was sores and, like, open wounds on Morrison, like, you know, just being held in with us and shit, like. And that's also a product, that kind of thing. And, like, we'll talk about this in just a sec, too, is that's a product of the HIV, dude, because HIV, human, you know, immunodeficiency, like, it's it's basically, it's your immune system. And, obviously, now people are far more in tune with what immune system is with COVID and all that type of shit, right? But it's your immune system being unable to fight regular shit is what it is. It's a weakening of your immune system. And that's why people die is they don't like the AIDS or HIV doesn't kill them. It's that like they get a cold and now their body can't fight off a cold. They get the flu. Their body can't fight off a flu. They step on something and get some bad infection. Or if they're a drug user, you know, reuse needles, et cetera, those kinds of things. And so, uh, you know, that's basically what winds up happening is, you know, he had, you get lesions, you wind up getting sores, et cetera. And that's, you could see in the photos and the video, he looks icky, bro. He looks like he's not healthy. And so for somebody like his wife at the time when he died to be like, dude, you know, he's fine. What are you talking about? He just had some little needle thing or, you know, it's like, yuck, bro, you guys are killing this guy. So he he went from his last fight in 2008 on that card where he's you know he scores a TKO two and then TKO three in this final fight, but uh, he fell head first after this fight. Like I mean, like face first into methamphetamines, real bad. Yeah. Um, and you could see, like I was saying a minute ago, that going from like how you just described him, like he looked bad enough. Like he looked ragged. He looked like he had lived a rough life. I mean, look, I'm 40. I'm not saying I look young. I'm not saying I look fresh, but I don't look like that. And this fool was like 37 or something at the time. And and then to go, but to go from that, where he's like wearing eyeliner, he looks like Tammy Faye Baker and shit, to go from that, but then all of a sudden, two years later, he gets arrested uh, for methamphetamine possession, looks like a totally different person, like a completely different person. He looks like Tommy Morrison's great uncle. He does not look like Tommy Morrison anymore. No, it, it was it was really, really bad. And not only that, he still wasn't done trying to fight, bro. Like, that's the last... He was convinced that nothing was wrong. He was still convinced he was... This is Now he's on full-blown, just like... Like a Trump person would be, you know, conspiracy theory. Everything is wrong. Blame it on everybody else. Blame it on this. Blame oh, it shit, on that. We just lost like half our listeners, bro. Uh, shit happens <laughs> if that's the case then good but yeah, um welcome. they you know he was he was a full-blown delusion now and it was bad when he was still taking his medication early on in the early 2000s and like when he first got out of jail and like doing things he was looking good there's that there's the clip of the doctor telling him you know your levels are so low that you can't it's undetectable keep on taking your medication and 
doing what you got to do. And you would see there's like rows of them on like his, you know, AM tablets, PM tablets. Like you got to take your shit every day. You know what I mean? It is what it is. You take your cocktail and then that's how you live your normal life. That's how Magic Johnson has been able to live with this for over 30 years now. That's how others have now been able to like live normal, normalish lives with this. Like Morrison just, I don't know what went on in his head to make him decide that he was above this. And that like it was everybody else's fault and everybody trying to come at him and that this was not his thing. Like when it was clear. And not only that, it wasn't like besides his crazy ass wife, his whole family and immediate support system were kind of against him in his delusions like this. They were the one they were none of them were like supporting him and telling him, Yeah, Tommy, you're right about that. No, no, you're totally right. You don't have AIDS. It's all a fucking conspiracy. None of them said that. They all knew he had it. And they all tried to convene to him, bro. You need to like take care of this. Please take your shit. Like. What is wrong with you? And he just wouldn't listen, you know? He was a king in his own world, dude. Yeah, exactly. And it got worse. Even his mom would be telling him, like, yo, you... And it got worse and worse. And like I said, the fighting didn't stop because even though now at this point, Aaron was finally out and the boxing was more or less done, they just knew it was was nothing there for him. He was still trying to... And if Bob Aram won't fuck with you... (laughs) I mean... To say the least, when Aaron was over there actively peddling to find you anywhere in the world or country that license you so he can make some kind of fucking penny off of you, I mean, that's, that's saying something. But now, you know, he starts dabbling in MMA. And it's like, not just, you know, we ain't talking UFC or even like some kind of like middling league. We're talking backroads, middle America, nowhere, West Virginia type shim sham bullshit. All right? Like, Wyoming, because that was where his last fight ended up. Wyoming. So, uh, which I think isn't. Hold on, but isn't Wyoming the only state that doesn't have a fucking combat sports commission? Probably, and that's why he was able to go there. I'm sure because there, there is. It's either Montana or Wyoming. Well, anyway, it's not that important. But the <laughs> point is that we already know that in a state like Wyoming, that shit is not regulated. Yeah, absolutely. It's like Fourteen people in the entire state. You know, and that's what that that bum ass promoter had to say before their fight because whoever Morrison was scheduled to fight, yeah, something happened. I don't know if they could schedule anybody or what was going on, but the promoter of the entire event decided he he himself was going to go in there and fight Tommy Morrison in a in a in a, in a kickboxing match. <laughs> and and uh, the quote I think it was from Azevedo's book. He says something to the effect of. Yeah, well, you know something? I'm doing this for the state of Wyoming. I'm sick and tired of people asking me where Wyoming is or what have we done or whatever. He said, by the time this is over, people in the world are going to know what, who, what, who we are and where Wyoming is. If you really, I, I'm, you know, there's other ways to get Wyoming on the map. I'm sure much better ways than to sacrifice yourself for a Tommy Morrison fiasco. But what do I know? It's you know? just, that's just a crystal ball into the <laughs> YouTube generation where you don't really give a fuck what it is you're getting famous for as long as you're famous. You're not even getting famous for this, bro. There was probably 15 people in that stupid ass. Yeah, it didn't even do what you wanted it to do, buddy yeah, boy. They had a little VF1 hall, VFW hall. And then, um, I don't know. It, it was bad. It was really, it was really, really bad. And that's, it is on YouTube. All right. That's, that's another one. Yeah. Watch at your own discretion because it's, it's, it's really depressing. But, um, the promoter of the event, you know, they, they grapple up. He tries to, I don't know, he's completely obese. Morrison's a walking zombie with pecs. And it's, it's just bad. 
like the guy clearly just like flubs it gets hit with like i don't even know if he gets punched but he goes skiddling across the ring all and you know exaggerated gets up gets knocked out again and morrison gets on the mic barely coherent says that he wants to make another run for it and he'll be back in a month or some shit but he never goes back for anything yeah i mean it's so many fighters and ex-fighters have branched out to do things like this but i mean this was pretty bad though this was like another level of like low yeah but there are obviously levels to like you know like somebody earnestly trying to challenge themselves as a fighter and somebody who's just desperate for some money obviously this fell under the second one um but i mean and it just didn't the story doesn't get any happier it doesn't get any better um you know you you put somebody who is like i was saying a king in his own mind or big fish in a small pond however you want to describe it somebody who has bought into their own delusion and into this secondary now delusion about hiv and aids and then on top of that is being totally enabled by somebody like you know the entire way root and stem you know it's that's obviously the story ends up where we all know it ends up uh, but that ESPN documentary, I think, is it adds a little bit more visual and visceral. You know, you can see what Tommy Morrison looked like, you know, in his last days. And Tony, it, it, Tony it, it, Holden, I, I think those were photos supplied by him because I highly doubt Trish would be sharing those. Well, but, the, the one the one where he's like bald, like he's like balding in the, the mugshot. That was that was shown before he passed away because there was news. Remember? The early days of Fox and Twitter, um, earliest, earlier days, because um, what, Morrison died, what year? 2012, 2013, around then? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Fox and Twitter was still kind of in its infancy a little bit, right? But there was enough people on it that we had, like, a little bit of community going around. And I remember that photo being, cir- I remember that photo being circulated. And people just being like, holy shit, Tommy Morrison, like, you know, just kind of, because here's the thing, too, that we didn't just mention is that, after this this last fiasco, Morrison was always a guy that was kind of active on social media with like the message boards with fans and doing this and doing that. And all of a sudden he disappeared, like just completely disappeared. And no one knew where he was. No one knew it could reach him to the point where a lot of people were presuming he did just straight up die because no one knew what happened to him, you know? And that's when that, that photo surfaced. And I remember people just like, holy shit, okay, Morrison's still alive. My God, he looks really, really really bad and then the articles started coming out because after that surfaced you know people started to figure it out the articles started coming out hey you know tommy morrison's like near the end tommy morrison's this but blah, blah, blah. his wife is coming out all these crazy things you know she starts going on facebook and then she starts going on the message boards and even twitter and starts saying you know he's dying wife, of a spider bite dying of a spider bite he's dying of this oh they took um they 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 put some kind of uh, tube or some shit in them and when they took it out, a piece of gauze was stuck in him and it got infected or whatever. And he has some kind of crazy chest, like everything except the actual truth of what was going on, you know? Well, and and the crazy thing is that a number of these things that they were pointing to could have even been true. They, he really could have gotten bitten by a spider. There really yeah. could have been something or some substance left in him in a surgery. That shit happens all the time, like a frightening mm-hmm. a fucking amount. But here's the thing the normal human being who does not have AIDS lives through those things. Exactly. And she was trying to say that he was fighting this infection while he was going through for like 21 months. Most people would die from immediately. And no, I don't know. It's, 
I don't believe in any of that stuff. Like, I just think that what exactly was going on is that, you know, he was at his, the end of it. And him not believing and being a denier of what was going on and kind of like stopping to take one and just not taking care of himself just contributed heavily to his demise early on. And that's tragic. It's absolutely tragic because he, that should not have happened. You know, if he had the right people behind him, which not to say that he didn't, Tony Holden was there for, you know, always was there for him and looked out for his best interest. And by all accounts, um, his both Don's, did the same thing and you know other stuff like that he had a support system out there that wanted to take care of him wanted to like help him you know it was just his own being and his own delusions and then people like his main wife over there feeding into that and making him think that he was totally right that just kind of fucked him you know because he should still be yeah. here bro. he should still be here like magic johnson is had he still kept on taking his medication chances are his level still would have been unnoticeable and unless he got caught up in other vices which is absolutely plausible because he totally did while he was on, you know, um, good chance because he was just young, you know, just yeah. young. it's a, it is tragic. You know, it is, it is a story of self-destruction, but also somebody in a way set up to fail, not, not too different from Mike Tyson in a way, you know, ironically, because that's who they're setting him up to try to be, you know, to be like the white Mike Tyson and Mike Tyson was, uh, you know, came up in a bad environment and not given the proper tools to be a good human being. And on top of that, you know, was enabled and Absolutely. was yeah treated in a way he probably shouldn't have been treated in order to thrive. And that's exactly what happened to Tommy Morrison. So uh, seeing the same kind of thing, it's sad. Uh, Mike Tyson's been able to turn his life around to some degree um, and kind of seized the reins back. And Tommy Morrison never did that. He he fell straight into something else. So that's yeah. the sad part, you know, is that he was set up poorly and then faltered at the wrong times and, you know, left behind a legacy of uh, a number of children, uh, some of whom didn't really seem to know him all that much. So, you know, it's a sad story. It's not It's not a super happy story per se, but he did have a profound effect on you know early 1990s boxing no question and he did and he absolutely did and that's the main thing i want to you know leave the viewers with is that like you can't words can't describe that what you know what boris and how exciting he was to watch back in the day and whether you are a fan of them of him or you were just hoping to see him fail because he thought he was a fraud or whatever you tuned in to watch him you know what i mean you were tuning in and you knew you were going to get your money's worth um because either he was going to spectacularly knock somebody out he was going to fight somebody that was just a little too good for him and that chances are he was going to get knocked out. Or he might have been on a bender, he's hung over and a guy that shouldn't last the distance with him is somehow going to go life and death with him. And regardless... Which is fun too. Yes, which is very (laughs) fun. So you just knew you were going to get your money's worth with him, you know what I mean? And put on top of that, like I said, he was really personable, he was friendly with uh, the media and fans for the most part. I mean, like, you know, we all know he had his outside of the ring issues, but anyone that ever met him as a fan has always said how wonderful he always was. And like I said, when I met him, he was the nicest guy and he couldn't have been more cooler than me. I was just like looking up to him like, man, this is Tommy fucking Morris. And like, it was so cool to meet him to me. And he was just, you know, treating me like a normal dude. Like he was really cool. He was personal. He was well, cool. the women who met him said he was really wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, all the photos... Bro, there is a t-shirt I saw on the documentary that I wish I could find now. The hands? Yes. Dude, that shit is awesome. 
How that good shit is- was fucking awesome. Whoever came up with that idea was fucking How genius. good was that shirt? Tommy Morrison, and then you see two women, you know, hands on women. Yeah, like grasping at him. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever came up with that idea is fucking genius. That is yeah. brilliant. That is a brilliant shirt, and I want it so badly. <laughs> yeah, um, that shit was good, dude. Yeah. Yeah, you so- know, it that uh, that's i guess you know apart from the tragedy apart from the sad thing a lot of a lot of the fun about remembering this obviously uh, we remember some of it ourselves and so it's nostalgia mm-hmm. but also thrusts you back into that kind of late 80s early 90s time where bro in this fucking documentary tommy they pan out as tommy Morrison sitting in front of like a lake and this motherfucker's wearing some pants that look like the fucking cups the like you know the like zigzag fucking yeah, pattern yeah, yeah. on those th- these and it's like bro that's the only time those pants ever existed. Zubas, right? I I don't know, but okay. they I don't remember what they were called. I just know that like the pattern is like there's this pattern is never used. The only time it's used now is like ironically to be like yeah, oh no, look it's at this it's so be, fucking stupid it's cool you know what I mean? I bet you he's wearing a fanny pack with it. Same thing with like the hat and just like. You know, yeah, some happens. some bright ass neon yeah. fucking something. Mm-hmm. And that and that was the look back then, man. If you had if you see the photo of the uh the eighty the eighty eight team of um there's a photo of Roy Jones, Riddick Bowe, and Ray Mercer together. Um and you know what you know exactly what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, those motherfuckers yeah. wearing like bugle boy, something else. Oh, no, wearing... man, no, fucking Ray is wearing Ray is and, wearing and the hat, the painter's hat. Yeah, Ray is wearing a beautiful Gucci um uh, uh what you would call a sweatsuit that he probably got from Dapper Dan or something like that. You know what I mean? Just like gorgeous down to the pad. Roy's wearing, I think, a tank top. Riddick is wearing the same thing with like a chain or some shit. Like this is looking stylish as hell, you know? It was a different era. It's my favorite era because that was the one where I was growing up as a kid. And the nineties will always be yeah. my favorite era of boxing because that's the it's one where fun, I dude. Sport. It is. And like I said, man. I was a huge Morrison fan. I missed the the very beginning of his career, but just see him in Rocky Five, watch him in the videos, finally being able to see like the Razor Ruddock fight live and doing other things. Like you just you got entangled with him, man. And it sucks what happened to his life. It sucks what happened to him. It's a tragic tale and it's a cautionary tale. But at the same time, you know, it's good that we bring him up and we celebrate the good with the bad with him because it was a lot of good with him, you know. Well, I, I appreciate you, you know, reading up. I know you were watching stuff, but look, I think a big a big part of the people who do enjoy what we're doing here, I I hope recognize that like when you talk about fighters and when you talk about shit that happened in history and in human beings, but like you take away part of that truth and you're trying to talk about them like they're a hero and you don't ever want to recognize bad shit they do. Do you rob you're robbing them of their humanity? They're not a human being anymore. Yeah. You know, they're not, they're something else. There's some Ali all the time. Yeah, there's some fictional character. You know, some of these in real life, good people do bad things, bad people do good things. You know what I'm saying? It's complicated. That's the whole point, is that we're trying to recognize that these people are complicated. And so, you know, I appreciate you doing the work so that we can do that. Cause it ain't easy. It ain't easy. Absolutely. You do the same, bro. You do the same. And it's always a pleasure doing these. And I hope that people, you know, enjoy and get something out of them too. Um, But before we sign off, I just wanted to uh, bring the mention really quickly that uh, you, you brought up to me yesterday. I had a post on Twitter, but I just want to give a quick shout out. um, RIP to Antoine Eccles, another former, um, another fighter who was fun as hell to watch back in the ring. 
And in the mold of Tommy Morrison, whether he won or lost or got knocked out or knocked somebody out, was always must-see television. Um, died way too young. Was he like 52 or something like that? And um, yeah, just a guy that I enjoyed watching thoroughly. So. Yeah, that's unfortunate because in the, uh, definitely a, a, like a middleweight staple in the 1990s. Uh, so Late 90s, early 2000s. Early 2000s too, yeah. yeah he's on ESPN a number of times, early 2000s. Huh? He was just true. really rugged, gully dude. One of those guys that if you hurt him, somehow he'd get more dangerous when he was hurt. And he didn't give a shit. Like I was watching this morning his rematch with Hopkins. <laughs> he goes over, you know, like he, he gets hurt. And, get, and then he gets hit with, with a rabbit punch. He complains to the referee, he complains to Tony Weeks about it. And then Hopkins comes, so he picks him up and slams Hopkins like a fireman slam that you see in wrestling. Hopkins lands right on his shoulder. First thing that Eccles does hilariously, it runs over to an HBO camera, the first ones he sees, and he goes, Bernard is faking. He fell over on his own, and they cut off of him immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude was a character, and I'm pretty sure he wound up getting shot at one point, too, like... He lived crazy. through some shit, so I mean... I just wanted to, just wanted to mention that. Yeah, so. no, I'm with you, dude. I... Yeah, rest in peace to that guy because he definitely was a part of uh, the boxing scene. But uh, again, man, I appreciate it. Thank you for doing the work. Thank you, everybody who listened in because we we do appreciate that. You know, we we know we're not like a big show. We're not a super popular show. So the people who do listen in or watch, we appreciate you. If you did listen in whatever podcast app you listened in on, go ahead and subscribe, please. Rating, comment, all those things. But if you watched on YouTube, Thanks again so much and subscribe. Uh, if you leave a reply, we'll try to reply back or suggestions, all those sorts of things. As far as social media goes, woo-wee, man, it's ever-changing day to day. But the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on both Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, whatever, dude. Fuck with... your limit, guys. Is that even still a thing? <laughs> Fuck with Twitter at your own risk because I don't know what's going on there. But individually we're also on social media uh for instance on twitter my boy eris pina is there as punch zone eris i'm there patrick connor is patrick m connor say hello we'll try to say hello back and eris we'll talk soon bro have a good one everyone.